63rd meeting of the Economy Committee. Some members will be attending this morning's meeting via Starleaf and our witnesses today will be briefing via Starleaf. The meeting will be broadcast live when open to the public and a recording will be made available on the committee's web pages on the Assembly website. So just to remind members to mute their devices when they aren't speaking. Moving on then, item number one is apologies and we haven't had any apologies. Not so far, no. Chair, no. Thank you. Item number two then is draft minutes. Um, at page five of your pack, there is a copy of the draft minutes from the meeting on the 19th of May. Are members content that those are an accurate reflection of the meeting? Agreed. Thank you. Thank you. Moving on then, item number three is chair's business. <coughs> There's a clerk's memo at page three of table papers and a presentation at page six summarising last week's informal meeting with Enerchem Solutions regarding their agri-waste power generation solution. The slides from Enerchem are commercial in confidence, so those should not be shared. So just out of the, that meeting, we have a few actions to ask members to agree that we write to the economy, finance and era ministers, as well as Invest NI, to advocate for an impartial study to be funded. An impartial study would be conducted without Enerchem and would seek to prove the technology and process. Therefore, the committee would not be seeking a commercial advantage for one particular company. So are, the, are members content with that approach? Yep. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. So moving on then to item number four, um, it's our departmental briefing on the review of level four and five provision in HE and FE. There is a clerk's memo at page 16 of your pack. There is a clerk's memo from the informal meeting with Ulster University at page 19. There is a clerk's memo from the informal meeting with Queen's at page 23. A clerk's meeting, a memo on the informal meeting with the colleges at page 28. A House of Commons Library briefing paper on level four and five education at page 23. A copy of an independent review of post-18 education at page 54. A copy of the UK D Department of Education's review of level four and five provision in England at page 270. An updated clerk's memo at page 28 of table papers and a copy of a written briefing from the department in January on the review at page 31 of table papers. And just to remind members that the Review Project Board has agreed the following work streams um, to define the Level 4 and 5 and HE and FE proposition, Level 4 and 5 qualifications, foundation degree policy, alignment with the department's other provisions, pathways and progression routes, funding and MASIN, the role of universities in level four and five provision and the role of further education colleges in level six provision and retention and achievement levels at level four and five and in HE and FE. So, Tommy, if I could ask you to bring the witnesses. Yep, you have them in already. And I would like to welcome to this morning's meeting Jamie Warnock, Assistant Director of Skills and Education in DFE and Elaine Dolan, who's Strategy Portfolio Management in DFE. So I hand over to yourselves um, to make an opening statement and then we'll bring members in. Thanks very much, Chair. Can I just check you can hear me okay? We can, yes. Um, sorry, I had a little little bit of technical difficulty. Starly. Uh, sorry, so thanks very much and thanks to members for taking the time. This morning. I think just Jamie, you're breaking up a bit. Brief introductions. Um, so I'm I'm Jamie Warren. Can I head the strategy portmore? 
Jamie, Jamie, can you try turning your camera off to see if it improves uh, the sound? Sorry, let me. That might just help with the sound. I've taken the camera off there, Peter. Is that any better? That's yes, much better. Much. much better. Thank you. Okay, I'll try. Sorry, the, the microphone isn't isn't the greatest, to be honest. So please do let me you know if I break up again and I'll, I'll see what I can do. That's um, much better, Jamie. So sorry, just Okay, great. Well hope hopefully that'll that'll be the technical difficulties behind us. Fingers crossed. Um no, I was just in the middle of, so uh I head up strategy portfolio management uh, within the department here, and really what we do is we work on a, a number of cross-cutting skills and education issues, um, of which this review that we're here to talk about today is a really key one that we have currently um, on the books. Uh, and with me this morning as well then is, is Elaine Dolan, and Elaine heads up the AT and FE and Widening Participation Branch. Uh, within the department. Um, so I'm the SRO for the project and Elaine is the project manager. Uh, so just in terms of the opening statement, I'll take a few minutes really to outline the context and the rationale behind this review um, and then I'll pass on to Elaine to update you on the work that has taken place to date. Uh, the work really got underway in earnest at the beginning of this, this calendar year. Um, so I think the best place to start is just to be clear on the definitions in terms of what this piece of work is looking at, because I think some of our initial work here has really highlighted that level four and level five and AT and FE isn't particularly well understood. Um, and I think it's just important that we, that we be clear. So level four, level five qualifications are really the qualifications which sit between A-levels and undergraduate degrees and uh, we've heard some stakeholders describe it as the missing middle, uh, where you know GCSEs, A levels, and degrees are very well understood, but this piece in the middle um, doesn't tend to be quite so uh, quite so well known or understood uh, out there. Uh, I think it's also just important to note as well the the slightly wordy title here of a review of level four, level five, and the AT and FE. Uh, the reason that's there is that uh, we are also looking at, as well as level four and level five, which is very much the focus, uh, we're also looking at provision at level four and above, right up to uh, degrees and masters, which are delivered at the FE colleges. Um, so they're an important part of this review as well. Um, so level four and level five provision and AT and FE uh, have a really significant role uh, in delivering the skills that the economy needs and also a really important role in widening access to higher education, uh, particularly for those from disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, so, so it is a really important area for us in the department. Um, and the, really the reason behind commencing this review, I know it's noted in the, brief, in the written briefing that was provided to the committee, but I think just to emphasize here, the, the issue, uh, apologies, my microphone is playing, uh, playing up there. Um, the issue really is that, that in terms of full-time enrolments um, at this level for AT and FE, um, back in 2016-2017, those enrolments peaked at 4,200 full-time enrolments. But ever since then, we've seen a very steady decline. And in fact, in the current uh, 2021 academic year, enrolments are now down to 3,323. 
so quite a steep decline here, and I know certainly in our engagements with the further education colleges, they find that particularly concerning, and um, in particular for some courses, they believe it's becoming a threat actually to the sustainability of provision at this level as course numbers uh, drop to a level where, where it wouldn't be sustainable in the future to maintain them. So that, that, that's a big concern, and I think set against that, uh, there's a massive economic challenge because the skills barometer would show us that uh, level four and level five uh, is a very undersupplied area for the Northern Ireland economy. Uh, it's somewhere around 1,500 qualified individuals that are undersupplied in the economy as at the last skills barometer, uh, which of course was 2019 and work is underway to refresh that. Um, as part of this work, we have had discussions with the Ulster University Economic Policy Centre, who deliver the, the skills barometer for the department. Um, and uh, the academics there have suggested that uh, there's no signs that that undersupply at level four and level five is going to go away anytime soon. And in fact, they think it could continue to grow. Um, so it, it should be noted that the impacts of COVID, um, we've evidence to suggest that um, uh, those impacts will be disproportionately felt by, by young people and particularly by those at the, uh, the lower end of the skills spectrum. So again, that just emphasizes, I th think, the need for um, for work here in this level four and level five space. Um, and in particular, we know that level four and level five has a really important role to play in terms of prosperity and well-being for individuals as well. Um, there were figures actually released by Ulster University earlier this week um, that would indicate that on average, a person upskilling from level three to a level four or five qualification can boost their earnings by 29%, which is, is a massive increase. Um, so the, the, there's, there's real positives here for individuals and of course an issue um, for the economy as a whole. Um, so, I mean, that, that's just a very brief overview of why we feel that this review is, is timely and very, very important. Um, and before I pass on to Elaine, um, to give you some more of the detail on the work we've, we've undertaken, just very quickly talk about um, sort of the, the project plan and the plans we have in place to tackle these issues. So in terms of governance, we've put in place a project board, uh, which I chair, and that, that includes officials from right across the, the NICS. Um, and sitting alongside that, we have a stakeholder advisory group, uh, which has been established. Sorry. Uh, and uh, that stakeholder group that brings together senior representatives from uh, further education colleges, from the higher education institutions, from CAFRI, who have a role to play here as well, SIA, and also uh, the student union are represented on the stakeholder board. Um, you've already covered, Chair, the dedicated work streams, uh, which we've set up to look at, um, so I'll, I'll not repeat those at all. Um, but just in terms of setting out the, the, the overarching plan, um, we, we would plan to complete the bulk of this um, over the remainder of this calendar year. Um, it takes probably into early 2022. And after some consultation, we would plan that a final report would be made available in spring 22. Uh, so, so that's that's a very uh, quick overview of the review. Uh, and I'll pass over to Elaine now, who can give you an update on some of the work strands that have got underway already. Thank you, Jamie. Um, just checking firstly that you can hear me okay? Yeah, we can. Thank you. 
Okay, um, so I just want to give you an update of, of where we've got to with the project so far. far. As Jimmy said, we, we really kicked in um, at the start of this year into the detail of the work strands, and we have initiated three of the work strands to date. So we've been looking to define the level four and five and the HNFE proposition. We've been looking to get a better understanding of the level four and five qualifications landscape and the offering. And we've also kicked off the retention and achievement strand as well. Um, in, in terms of the, the key areas of focus, um, in trying to establish the landscape, and we've been trying to build some foundations around what level four and five is and what we want to achieve from level four and five and the HNFE provision. Um, so what is the purpose of level four and five and the HNFE and also to set some principles that will guide future delivery and policy in this area. Um, what we've really established to date and what we've affirmed really is that there is a dual role in level four and five in the HNFE provision in terms of meeting the needs of employers and the economy and the equally significant role of meeting the needs of learners in terms of offering routes to employment, um, a, a progression step to further study within higher education and also the significant role as Jamie has mentioned in terms of widening participation for those from disadvantaged and underrepresented groups. Um, in terms of the principles, um, one of the things we really want to focus on is the fact that the lines are a bit blurred currently between what the universities deliver and what higher education and further education should be delivering. Um, so we're working on a suite of principles that will really um, hopefully uh, confirm and uh, clarify what the, the rules are. Um, and, and we do see very much the, the role of Level 4 and 5 and HENFE as being um, the vocational and the, the higher technical pathways. And we will be likely to affirm the role that colleges have to play in those pathways. Um, but we'll also not want to be too prescriptive and ensure that there is flexibility um, because the, the Level 4 and 5 space in particular and the, the colleges um, need that flexibility to meet niche and regional skills needs and to kind of offer that provision that's not addressed elsewhere. Um, and indeed, we would see this as a key strength of HE and FE um, in terms of the ability of the sector to meet the higher education needs that maybe aren't suited to university style provision. You know, we've, we've seen new, new needs kind of emerging in the higher education space that the colleges are currently looking at in terms of, for example, the automotive industry, gas industry. So um, th there is an opportunity there for um, to develop further higher technical and vocational pathways. Um, one of the, the kind of key findings emerging so far relates to the fact, um, and the committee will have heard this emerging also from the 14 to 19 project, it relates to the fact that the pathways are complex and the qualification space is quite crowded in terms of level four and five qualifications. And this leads, we think, to a degree of confusion among learners and employers. Um, and there is a lack of awareness of what the pathways are yeah. and what um, actually what the benefits and the value of undertaking a level four and five pathway might be. So this is something that we're working to address. Um, and we've also, the, the other key finding emerging to date uh, relates to the reforms that are taking place in England. Um, we were aware these were coming down the line, and so as part of this review, um, we, we commissioned SEA to undertake a risk assessment for us to um, consider the implications from the higher technical qualification reforms happening in England 
because our local colleges would um, use a lot of off-the-shelf qualifications, if you like, the likes of HNDs and HNCs that they would purchase um, from Pearson would be a delivering organization, for example. So a lot of these qualifications are currently being looked at in England and will have to go through a revised qualification um, approval process. Um, so there was a concern, obviously, about the for Northern Ireland about the future availability of those qualifications. So SIA have undertaken a risk assessment for us and they have in fact identified that there is a risk um, to the future availability of a number of qualifications in this space. So that's also um, one of the key findings emerging to date um, that we will need to consider and um, look at how we can address that risk. Um, happy to take questions um, on any of that. Thank you. Thank you both for that introduction and, and um, overview of where, where things are currently. And and I suppose you've picked out a number of points there in, in your introduction, which um, I wanted to ask about. But um, a few things maybe just to pick up on. First of all, in relation to the stakeholder advisory group, um, are there uh, business representatives and employer representatives and um, even social enterprise representatives in relation to that? I'm just thinking of of the type of qualifications and how they may, might be utilised and if, if businesses do have an opportunity to, to uh, feed into this? Uh, thanks, Chair. It's, it's, it's a really important question. Um, uh, I mean, the short answer is no. We don't have a business representative on the stakeholder advisory group and that wasn't um, an oversight as such. It's rather when we, when we looked at it and we were trying to put this group together, we found that it was quite challenging to um, to find an appropriate representative that we didn't want to narrow the focus too much. Um, so actually our plans in terms of engaging business through this review are to utilize some of the really good in engagement uh, forums that we have in place um, across the skills landscape. So in particular, um, we would be looking to use the further education and curriculum hubs and the sectoral partnerships that have been set up to to support uh, the delivery of uh, our apprenticeship programmes. Um, as I say, we, we thought that would be a more appropriate way to, to do that engagement, particularly because, as Elena said, this is, this is a fairly crowded and, and complicated space. And, and I think we felt that one or two business representatives on the stakeholder group would have had the potential to narrow the focus too much. Hmm. Okay. Um, and in relation to the project board, um, you says it has representatives from across the civil service. So what departments are um, represented? And I'm just I'm specifically thinking communities, given the, I suppose, the, the employability role there. Um, and, 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 you know, other departments obviously will have to feed in as well. Um, so it, it is um, predominantly made up of officials around the Department for Economy, as you might expect. So we have representatives from our further education, higher education divisions, apprenticeships there. Um, we have a representative from DERA there in respect of CAFRI and their work. Um, and as I say, CAFRI directly have a, have a rep on the, the stakeholder group as well. Um, we then, uh, we don't have communities there. Uh, actually, you know, I... Um, as part of part of my role, I sit on the employability and I program board as well. So I I sort of act as liaison uh, across the suite of programs. But um, but it's certainly something we could we could consider. I mean, the, the project board um, it, it is a it is a live structure as such. So it's something we could certainly take away and consider um, 
if communities could um, could take part there. I'm just specifically thinking, I suppose, of the, the economic recovery um, from COVID and how we need to have, I suppose, really joined up working between departments in relation to, you know, getting people back in, into work. And, I would, you know, I'm glad to hear DERA is represented, but I would be thinking of that beyond just the role within CAFRI, um, you know, in terms of the kind of green recovery aspect to, to things, you know, and the opportunities within that sector and the need for skills development in that sector. Is that something that is being broadly considered within the scope of, of this um, review? You know, is specific areas of skills being being looked at or is it provision just in, in the like broadest sense? Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's both, to be honest, Chair. Um, I think certainly in terms of the broader economic recovery piece uh, and in relation to uh, the, the 10x document that was launched a few weeks ago and, and indeed the forthcoming skills strategy consultation um, this is this is a really important piece I think in terms of one, one of the one of the core themes uh, proposed in the, in the new skills strategy will be addressing skills imbalances and this review and the outcomes of this review are very much seen as a key pillar um, in terms of addressing those skills imbalances. Um, and we do have, of working across the department, we, we would tend, in terms of green recovery and green economy, we would tend to work uh, rather than directly with, with DERA on that. We tend to work through our energy group colleagues within uh, the department um, and, and try and support the energy strategy. And, and there's some work underway there to try and scope out and research the skills needs um, of decarbonisation and you know heading towards uh, net zero. Um, so the, the, that's primarily where the green recovery work would would fit in. Okay, thank, thanks for that. Um, and the assembly passed a motion earlier in the week around a, a green new deal, and, and one of the, the points I think that's really important in terms of a green new deal is it brings together all the various work streams. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something certainly maybe we should reflect back to the department in terms of um, coming out of this meeting. Just a final question for me is around the careers piece because um, it's something that's often raised with us in the, in the committee over our kind of skills work over the last um, number of months is, I suppose, the uh, lack of uh, fit for purposeness of careers provision still. So I just wonder how is that being factored into the review? I know you did mention it, Elaine. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll maybe bring Elaine in to talk in a second in a bit more detail, because I think that has been a particular focus of of the strand A work in terms of defining the proposition and, and certainly basically are trying to make level four, level five provision better understand. In terms of careers and the work we're doing with our career service there, there there's quite quite a bit of work underway there. I mean it's it's looking across the whole careers piece, but um, I suppose we're very conscious that level four, level five isn't well understood, and I, th I think that's across. Um, that's people, so parents. It's also teachers, um, and in fact, employers. Because anecdotally, what we've what we've heard is that, and something we need to look more in depth at as the review progresses. But anecdotally, we've been told that um, there are many cases where employers are perhaps advertising for graduate jobs and looking for graduates to come in, 
when in fact it would be much better suited advertising for level four, level five skills, because that's really where their skills profile is in terms of the, the work they require. So, so there's, there's an educational piece, I think, perhaps across the whole piece, but, but absolutely careers, I think, have to be uh, one of our key key focal points for that work. Um, Elaine, I'm not sure, do you want to say anything more in terms of the work that, um, that Strand A has been doing? Yeah, thanks, Jamie, and uh, apologies if I repeat anything Jamie has just said because um, he was breaking up there a little bit for me. But um, I think you know, getting the right information out to parents and learners is one of the key challenges for us in the level four and five landscape. Um, what we're doing as part of the the first work strand is we're trying to draw out the value and benefits of undertaking a qualification at level four and five or in HE and FE. And we're also hoping that um, through the skills barometer research, we can get some more information there in terms of what the jobs are, who the employers are, where that where this undersupply is. And we're also working um, with the sector, with the FE sector, to develop a suite of unique selling points for level four and five and the HE and FE. And the hope is that we can then utilize all of this information um, to sell level four and five provision. So we're, we're, we're gathering a lot of, I think, information that careers advisors will then be able to use to, to effectively uh, sell to learners and parents what the real benefits and value of undertaking these pathways are. But the careers advice is one, certainly one of the challenges for us. Okay, well, thanks for that. Stuart? Yes, uh, thank you very much, Chair, uh, and thank you for, for, for bringing us to us this morning. Quite often we will sit in committee meetings here and people will talk in perhaps what might be described as technical terms. Level four and five, there will be members of the public actually watching this uh, committee today and others. Could you give us a flavour or an example of what level four and five courses actually are um, so that we can put this in context? Now, um, maybe if you answer that for me first of all, I have a number of other questions around uh, some of the where we go from here stuff. Thanks. Um, I think I think again I will I will defer to Elaine in a second on some more of the detail. But I, I have to be honest. This this is I can certainly hold my hand up and say this is something I struggled with when I uh, first began this piece of work, um, and it is a crowded space. So in terms of qualifications. You would have uh, um, HNCs, higher national certificates, HNDs, yeah. diplomas. Uh, you have foundation degrees, which um, are currently, um, in terms of departmental policy, um, foundation degrees are the preferred uh, intermediate HE qualification. Um, and that was a policy which was set a number of years ago. One of the key parts of this work is to review whether that policy remains, uh, remains fit for purpose. Um, so, so it is a crowded space. There, there are a lot of qualifications in the space. In terms of trying to give a bit of flavour of sort of the areas uh, that that are at play here, or the sectors that are at play, um, one one of the biggest sectors in terms of level four and level five demand in the economy would be uh, uh, professions allied to medicine. So that would be in in the sort of um, social care type yeah. space, okay. um, and and areas like that. Um, so that, that's one of the biggest areas. And actually, um, you know, I think quite often people think in this space that, you know, sort of more technical skills in terms of, you know, skilled trades people. Um, that, that's certainly what I thought 
when I come into this work, but actually um, business and administration and professional qualifications are actually um, one of the biggest sectors at play here too. So um, to use a slightly crude term, but you know, white collar um, type professions are um, make up make up uh, a large part of of the demand here. Um, Elaine, I'm not sure if you want to add anything to that. Thanks, Jamie. Um, yeah, so just to explain slightly um, further, foundation degrees then, as, as Jamie said, are the department's current preferred uh, qualification at this level. They're qualifications that are actually awarded by the universities, but deliver the, the colleges would be, the colleges in Caffrey would be the um, provider or the delivering organisation as such, and about 33% of level four and level five provision in the further education colleges um, is, is foundation degree and then the, ne the next biggest qualification um, would be the HNCs and the HNDs and they make up about 26% of provision at level four and five in the further education sector and they're the off-the-shelf type qualifications I was referring to where the, the colleges would um, the, the awarding organization would be the likes of Pearson but the colleges and, and Caffrey would deliver um, but there are also a range of other qualifications that sit on the regulated qualifications framework work. Um, there are professional and technical qualifications. Um, there's some NVQs. Um, there, there's just a range, or a real plethora of qualifications that would often be described as. But there, there are two distinct types of qualification. There are those that are delivered in partnership with the universities, and they are primarily the foundation degree. But there's also um, certificates in HE and diplomas in HE, where the, the colleges would also deliver in partnership with the universities. And then there's those that sit in the regulated qualifications framework, where the awarding organisations would be Pearson, City and Gills. Um, so, so quite a range of qualifications, but just to give you an idea of quant scale, um, I think nearly 60% would be the foundation degree and the HND and the HNCs. And, and I, I mean, that, that's a little clearer, but I, I, what I would like to understand is the actual the actual qualification, the, the course content that the people are undertaking. I, I understand what, what university pre-entry courses are. Um, and if they're in the health and allied fields, um, then that's fairly clear. But for example, HNCs and stuff like that, are these people who are maybe taking a higher qualification, something like gas fitting, plumbing, um, some of them were technical skills in IT. Um, it's just to, 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 to sort of try and get a handle on that aspect of the actual courses that on the subject areas, because it goes back to the point that the chair made about the involvement of employers. As I understand that you don't want you don't want employers coming in from one sector heavily influencing the outcomes of this. But but I think we need to we need to have an understanding of where uh, where the shortcomings are. I mean, we, we have in front of us a, a House of Commons report which says between 2009-2016 there's been a 63% drop in, in students in these course areas. Now, are you basically playing catch-up here and is this something we should already have recognised as being a shortfall? Um, and you, you did admit to us that, that, that uh, you already have shortages in, in the courses. Um, what are you doing to look to, for example, international experience in respect of this? Is it too crowded a field? Uh, and should there, should we be looking more to 
develop something, for example, like the German model, uh, which takes people into technical college rather than this sort of mixed area between FE and university, uh, and where people get qualifications that uh, provide, as you say, I mean, the, the, these qualifications can provide uh, good quality good, well-paid jobs, but it's just how people understand how they can get into that. And indeed, going backwards, how, do, how does this fit back into the careers, uh, choices that are being given to young people coming out of school? Um, I, I have a concern that, that, that everybody is pointed towards university um, and that we, we need to be uh, pointing people to where the skills shortages are and encourage people to understand the value of many of these technical style qualifications. Um, just to get all the questions to you and then you can, you can start to pick your way through them. Um, if there are shortages, and maybe critical shortages, because as the Chair also pointed out, uh, we are both recovering from COVID, but we're also moving into a new world where we need to change technology going forward. We need to uh, be looking to our new green carbon-free economies. So what incentives are being offered, or what potential incentives will there be being offered to students to join some of these courses uh, as we go forward? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, quite quite a lot to, to unpick there. And do, do bring me back if I've missed anything and, and, and don't come back to you on it. But certainly, um, I, I think you've hit on a very, very important issue here in terms of defining the space. And um, I think you said, is, is it a crowded space or, or is it, is it mm. words to that effect? Um, the, sh the short answer, I think, in what we found, found out in our initial work is that, yes, it absolutely is. And in fact, the work that we commissioned SIA to do in looking in the qualification space really highlighted that. That um, after looking at uh, some of the some of the biggest areas, um, you have sort of uh, two or three or four quite uh, sort of chunky blocks um, in terms of sector involvement or qualification involvement or even indeed awarding organisations. After that, it can become very fragmented and, and actually quite small scale provision. Now. Um, what, what our, our colleges have told us is that you, you shouldn't overlook that small-scale provision because mm -hmm. it might be niche, but it has a very important role, perhaps either in, a, in the sub-regional context, in a certain part of, uh, um, of the region, um, or, or because it's just a very niche set of skills. Um, and in particular, I was highlighted to some of the automotive um, qualification pathways there. Um, so, so it, it is a fragmented space, and I think that's why it's maybe a little difficult. I think, I think we're probably not explaining in, in quite the way you want us to here, but I think what might be useful, we did gather, I think, some case studies in terms of looking at um, uh, the proposition and the value of um, level four, level five provision. So perhaps it might be an idea if we could, if we could send some of those to you in writing after the session. Uh, that might actually give a bit more flavour and give, give a bit more of an idea of of where the real benefits are here. Would that be helpful? Yes, that would be very helpful. Sure, well, we can we can certainly arrange that. Um, and then I think um, in terms of talking about international practice and in terms of the uh, the German model you referred to, I think that's absolutely something that um, is in play to be considered here. Um, 
it's it's something that I know um, that the economy minister has talked about a number of times as well. Um, it's something we, we want to look at, and I think it's probably important to to mention here that this this work and this project is very closely aligned to the work on uh, 14 to 19 strategy, yes. um, because. Uh, of course, level four and level five, we don't see this as working in isolation. We don't see this as let's make level four and level five gold-plated, perfect. Uh, you know, and obviously we'd like it to be um, internationally recognised and best practice. But if we do do all of that and forget about uh, you know entry level uh, one, two, and levels three, mm-hmm. um, it, it won't make a whole lot of difference. Um, so, so we're very much seeing this as. A piece of a much wider puzzle, and we're, we're dovetailing in um, with the 14 to 19 strategy um, on a lot of that, and certainly on a lot of the um, careers work and how we how we communicate these pathways. Um, Elaine's already touched on it, but um, you know how we communicate these pathways in particular to parents and and uh, young people, and in fact, um, just just touching on your point about tech technology and new ways of working. Um, what we find with the career service over COVID is that actually a massive benefit of having to, to um, scramble to move to an online delivery model, mm-hmm. it has allowed parents to be more directly involved in um, in their children's careers advice. So instead of, instead of it being delivered at school, where it's sort of one-to-one with just the young person, parents are able to be in the room on the other end of the screen mm-hmm. and they're hearing it, you know, um, they're hearing it directly from the careers advisor. So uh, that's something we, I think we would, we would be really loath to lose that learning as we sort of uh, go back to, go back to normal in inverted commas. We, we don't really want to go back to normal. We want to make sure that we embed some of that good practice and some of that learning that we find um, over COVID has, has worked really well. Um, and then um, lastly, just to touch on your point about incentives, um, there there is a dedicated work strand, um, and it's towards the end of the project, actually, because that was by design, because we think the work strand is about funding. And um, I wanted to make sure in the design of this project that we had enough information gathered so that towards the end, when we start to look at funding, it's a very, very well-informed view of what what is possible there and what are the problems there, and I know, um, and, and Elaine, maybe you could touch on it, but I know that there there's a bit of a complicated background in terms of student support for those undertaking um, level four, level five qualifications, and that's something absolutely we want to um, get under the skin of in this project and and hopefully um, fix fix some of those issues. Um, Elaine, do, do you want to maybe talk about some of the some of the detail there? Yeah, thanks, Jamie. So I, I think that the main issue is that the student support, as it's currently designed, um, really only offers uh, this, this kind of full suite of student support to those students who are undertaking the foundation degrees and the HNDs and the HNCs. Um, so if, if we want more students coming through these pathways and undertaking um, a range of qualifications at these levels, then um, looking at actually what student support support is available um, needs to be considered. Yeah. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Um, Can I just ask two quick questions, Um, just following on from from Stuart's questions. In relation to the, I suppose, the FE and HE 
no HE and FE provision. Um, is the awarding powers something that is being looked at in relation to um, HE provision and in particular, I suppose, the foundation degrees, the HNDs, the HNCs? Uh, yes. The short answer is yes, it is. It is being looked at. Currently, the system is designed in such a way that um, uh, a further education college that would like to deliver a qualification in space, say a foundation degree, um, their first port of call would be to um, look to work with our local universities uh, and to, to um, effectively the local university uh, would, would seek to act as the awarding organisation. Mm -hmm. Um, with the college then being the, the deliverer of the qualification. Now, I know that is something that the colleges in particular would, would like to be considered as part of this review, and it will be considered as part of the review. Um, you know, it was, it was part of uh, the foundation degree policy that I, that I mentioned um, in one of the earlier questions. Um, and that's, that's a part of the policy we want to look at again, just to check, does it, does it still make sense? Does it make sense for our colleges and for our universities, um, and I think I think as well it touches on one of the core themes I think underlying all of this work is that we want to foster and develop much better collaboration between FE and HE, and in fact move away from two separate sectors and move towards uh, a, a sort of genuinely unified tertiary sector. Um, so, so that is that's a very important. Um, uh, aim behind behind this work. Okay, thanks for that. That that's good to know. And then the, the second question is just around um, the independent review of education that's being undertaken at the minute. Um, is there, uh, I suppose, tie-in between the fourteen to nineteen review and the independent review of education, and our DFE officials um, being able to feed into the review of education? Um, absolutely. Yes, we've we've had really good engagement um, from this department. With the Department of Education, um, uh, particularly around the setup of the Independent Review of Education, there were there were a number of, of good engagements, and in fact, I think between ministers as well, in terms of ensuring that the Independent Review of Education was um, uh, sufficiently broad in scope to consider uh, further education and higher education issues in there. Um, so, so yes, there, there's a very good link there. As I understand it, the Independent Review of Education, um, they are moving towards the uh, appointments stage uh, for the panel there. So I, I would, um, I don't want to put words in my colleagues from Department of Education's mouths, but um, I, I would think that panel would be appointed um, in the very near term. And then absolutely a, a key part of our work in the Skills and Education Group for the Department for Economy will be in um, working with that panel to put some of these issues to them. Okay, no, that's good to know as well. Um, can we bring Gary into the spotlight, please? Yeah, thanks, Chair, and uh, thanks, uh, Jamie and, and Elaine, for uh, your presentation. Obviously, um, I, I very much welcome the review. Uh, I note that the, the review is due to be completed in spring 2022. Uh, I, I think that, uh, as the Chair has mentioned, obviously this is cross-cutting uh, across uh, quite a number of departments, not just DERA. I think it is important that uh, the Communities Department has a role, 
um, alongside obviously education as well. But just in terms of um, the review itself, so so obviously we're taking into account the, the needs of learners and the views of the employers, uh, how we reach some of the most disadvantaged within our communities. Uh, I think that that's very important. And I suppose that's where my question lies. Uh, first of all, is around how do you see this review been able to reach and hear from some of the, the harder to reach, more disadvantaged backgrounds? Uh, do you see this review taking into account uh, how people possibly want to study and learn differently? So, for example, uh, the Northwest Regional College here uh, within my constituency has put a lot of effort into uh, outreach, you know, doing various uh, courses within communities, you know, going to people where they are, as opposed to people having to go to a, a formal uh, setting. You know, will the review take all of this into account? Uh, that's the first point. Uh, the second point, uh, Chair, is around, um, again, the careers advice issue. Uh, and I call it a, an issue because uh, it has been going on for some time. I know, you know, I think back to, you know, when I got careers advice, you know, I was told you know, not to go into computing because there's no jobs in it, um, you know, which, which couldn't have been further from the truth. And, and I know that there's many careers advisors out there who, who do uh, a good job, but we need to ensure that the advice is, is up to date, that it's uh, in the 21st century and that we're going to meet the needs of the employers, uh, not only of today, but of the future as well. So I think that the, the careers advice is, is a big issue. And just finally, um, the, the review outcomes... Uh, according to your paper, it's going to feed into the future uh, skills strategy. Uh, you know, will the outcomes be used anywhere else? Uh, you know, is, can this um, paper, can this review be used to, um, I suppose, shape uh, other aspects of the department? I think that, you know, there are a lot of strategies out there at the moment. Um, the 10X document that the minister launched is very welcome. Uh, we're dealing with the economic recovery plan at this minute in time the chair alluded to the green new deal stuff there's a lot of things happening it's important that you know that's all joined up and that whatever the outcome of the, the review and hopefully it's thorough uh, that that you know we, we see action at the end of it so thanks jimmy and thanks elaine for that thank you uh, i'll maybe i'll maybe take your last point first there um if that's okay um certainly we would see the outcomes of the this review as 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 being wide-reaching. So, I mean, we've already talked about um, this morning. You know, just just there, the independent review of education, and and I suppose we would, we would absolutely like to see a sort of virtuous loop created where where we can we can feed these outcomes in across the board. Um, I think um, certainly um, you've raised a really important point um, this morning in terms of. The involvement of the Department for Communities more directly in this project, and that's something we will we will absolutely take away and look at. Uh, and again, that that absolutely ties to the point: is how can we feed this across? Um, I think a general point in terms of skills uh, policies and programs is that it it does appear in in a lot of areas. So you know you, you would see it in programs that the Department for Communities are running. Of course, it has very close links to to the employability work there, but. Um, in previous work that I've done in, in, for instance, the executive office, where um, good relations programs are running, you quite, quite often would find there is a skills link um, into the, those pro programs where they're, they're trying to get into some of the harder to reach or, or more disadvantaged areas um, and, and upskill alongside a good relations activity. So 
absolutely, I would see this work as as having a wide reach, um, and um, that, that's what I, I'd absolutely want to see. Um, coming back to to the point in terms of in, engaging um, those who are maybe further away from uh, from the labour market or, or harder to reach, um, I think Elaine um, works very closely with the colleges and with the universities in terms of their widening participation activity uh, um, and and. Elaine, I'll, I'll maybe ask you to say a bit, a bit more detail in terms of, of the work there. Thanks, Jamie. So I, I think there's there's two important aspects to improving, I suppose, the outcomes for those that are furthest away from education and those that are underrepresented. Um, I, I think through this project, if we can streamline and clarify the pathways and progression routes, if we can get that right, um, then I think um, there's opportunities. Um, more, learners will be more aware of the opportunities emerging from various um, level three qualifications, whether they be in schools or at the FE colleges, um, and also for those who have recognised prior learning and not necessarily the qualification. So I think we can make a real difference in terms of increasing participation for, for those from disadvantaged backgrounds or with um, special education and needs or disabilities, if we can get the pathways and progression right. Um, the other aspect then is the, the, the providers are required to undertake widening access and participation activities. Um, it's a regulatory requirement from the department and we do monitor that on an annual basis um, and there's a current requirement where providers must spend 10% of their additional higher education fee income on such activities as outreach and retention. Um, obviously, if we could increase the numbers in higher education, um, in the further education colleges, if we could meet the maximum student number, then um, th that should channel um, more, more funding going through to the widening access and participation activities where the colleges then can undertake that com community outreach that you referred to. Um, so, I think this project and also um, what we're doing on the widening access side as well um, are both relevant to your query. Okay. Guy, do you Thank want you. to come back in? or? No, Chair, that's fine. Uh, thanks, Damien and Elaine, for that. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. Um, can we bring John O'Dowd into the spotlight, please? Oh, John, you're still on mute. Um, big clumsy fingers. The, <laughs> a lot of the areas I wanted to cover have already been asked and answers given. And I suspect many of the issues are already known and there have been debated and mulled over many, many times. Finding the solutions is, is much more difficult to this. Though I do welcome the fact that there has been greater engagement with parents because despite the best careers advice being given in schools or by others, it's quite clear that in many cases careers advice is given by the parents who base the economy and the skills on their experience, which is out, often outdated, uh, such as the scale of changes in our economy and our skills requirement. But there's two points I want to ask. One. Is there any engagement with students and students' representatives in regards to this review? And will the review, I think this was answered in, in a number of the questions, uh, 
colleges are particularly seeing competition from schools, perhaps as, as a result of the entitlement framework. Um, in fact, as a result of the entitlement framework, and that's not an argument against the entitlement framework, but also uh, universities now as well, uh, entering some of that space and back and forth. So will the review be robust enough to challenge some of the stakeholders in the system to ensure that what we come out of it the other side will be a system fit for purpose rather than a rearranging of the deck chairs? Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and those are some very, very important points. I'll, I'll deal with the first one um, first, which is in terms of engagement with students. So yes, we have a representative from the student union sitting on the stakeholder advisory group, and, and indeed we've had we've had a couple of conversations there in terms of how we can then uh, um, hopefully use the student union rep as a as a gateway into getting more, more directly into some student views as the, as the review progresses. Um, so I mean I. I uh, I was I was in conversation with um, with Pivotal um, last week, who who you may be familiar with, in terms of the policy work they're doing in this space, and um, again, there's a commitment there to continue to work with Pivotal as they're doing um, some work there. Um, it's particularly looking at the area of students who have uh, migrated out of Northern Ireland, um, and indeed uh, graduates and professionals who who have chosen to. To work away from Northern Ireland and understand some of the factors behind uh, those decisions being made, uh, and some of the emerging findings there um, link very much to this piece of work, um, where it is about um, developing a better student experience um, that will attract uh, either attract our own young people to stay and to stay here, um, or indeed attract uh, attract those from from elsewhere to come here. Um, so that's a really important piece of this, um, uh, and absolutely, students. We want to see students uh, directly involved in, in developing the, the outcomes of this review. Um, moving on to your point about the, the competition uh, issue, it's it's absolutely something we have we have heard from colleges, um, and that they do feel, I think, squeezed at both ends here in terms of whether it is schools retaining. Uh, pupils um, in, in sixth form colleges that maybe would be better suited to a further education experience and, and likewise then um, uh, whether there are students at university um, that, that again would be better suited in an FE route. Um, so it, it is something we're looking at. Um, it's something that the colleges have absolutely made and in terms of those robust discussions, I mean they, they have already been taking place in those challenging questions. Uh, so we have the colleges and we have the university's senior representatives from them around the same table, uh, and and we're able to have those challenging discussions already. Um, so absolutely, I would see the outcomes of this review as as being, uh, you know, very challenging. I think they'll be challenging for for all parts of the system, the department included, um, where we need to we need to really look at this and develop, um, as I touched on in a previous answer, develop a much more cohesive tertiary sector. Uh, where where you eliminate the competition and actually have have all parts of the system working together, um, primarily to deliver better outcomes for for young people. 
I think it's important to note as well, there's actually a real will, uh, a genuine desire, I think, from the universities and the colleges to work together more collaboratively, and we're seeing that that is now um, taking place. So I think in terms of where we go in the future, there, as Jamie referred to, there will be a more joined up sector, and the sector will work together collaboratively um, in the best interests of, of meeting the needs of the NI economy and also the needs of learners. Okay, thank you. Thanks, John. Can we bring Claire into the spotlight, please? Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you for the presentation. Um, you've perhaps already articulated this, but I suppose where I have a concern between FE, uh, sixth form, and even uh, HE at university is the funding model. And I think the FE colleges tend to be on the back foot in relation to this because I understand that their funding comes by retention, so how many students they have left at an end of a course, and then you know that what that means for September, and particularly with the year that has passed, an awful lot of uh, students have dropped out because they feel they're not getting the full course experience, or they feel that they you know they can't work in the way um, from home, or they just don't even have the capacity to. And I appreciate that FE colleges were providing um, equipment to do that, but you know that's only one piece of the puzzle and being able to to, to keep them on that course. So I suppose, you know, when, when we look at this in the round and we look at it also in the context of HGM6 form, I, I, I do think the FE is at a disadvantage in terms of what, you know, retention on the courses look like. You know, some students are dropping out a week before, you know, you know the, the term ends or, you know, in, in June or, or, or July. Um, you know, so, so I, I became to hear your thoughts in and around that and how we how we address that so that the figures aren't disproportionate and skewed. Um, and also, how, how do we ensure better retention? And um, the other question I would ask too is, um, we've talked about some of those courses that maybe don't seem sustainable, but what about those courses that seem to be growing? You know, where is the interest? You know, um, what, what courses are full? Should be re we replicating them across campuses? Um, you know, we're saying that even uh, with Ulster University, that some of the other courses that are doing very well in, in Johnstown and Belfast are maybe being brought up to, to Corian and Gay. You know, so, so um, I, I know there's a negative picture, but wh where's the positives and how do we exploit that and try and roll that out? Thank you. Um, if thank I could you, just. Um... No, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Elaine. Uh, I, was, I was just going to ask if maybe you wanted to talk about the funding model. Yeah, um, so just in response to your query on the funding, um, the, the way it works for higher education and further education is that the colleges would submit a, a bit each year um, for their full-time numbers. Um, so it's not necessarily that they lose funding um, as a result of what happened in the prior year. The department assesses that bid um, and then allocates student numbers to each college based on that, and then the funding goes is attached to, to the student numbers that are allocated. Um, so it, the department, obviously, in its considerations, will look at previous trends, trends in terms of the numbers. Um, but uh, last year, for example, even though the numbers were in decline, the colleges um, were able to retain some of the funding with certain conditions attached. Um, so just to flag, it's not necessarily the case they will lose the funding if, the, if based on the numbers from the prior year. But isn't it the case that you know that it is almost a retrospective look at the course, whereas um, particularly with sixth form colleges, it's weeks since September rather than looking back. Is that is that right? I, I, I just understand that there is a difference between 
what happens in Department of Education sixth form, and then what's happening with FE and HE. And it does seem to suggest to me that you know that there's there's a there's something that's not lining up there, um, which is leading maybe FE and HE to to, to be at a disadvantage. Okay. Well, I, to be honest, I'm not familiar with how it works in the Department of Education, um, but I, I do know that we look to, I suppose, to the future, to what the colleges think that they can fill in terms of the numbers for HE and FE. Um, but I, I'm sorry, I can't answer your question in terms of comparability with, with education. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it might be worth you know looking at what's happening in education, given that you will either stay within that department or you'll go to the Department for the Economy. And the, 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 I suppose the, the struggle, if you like, between both is you know is the fact that there's two departments maybe not talking to each other you know um, maybe that's something that you know we, we could consider yeah thank you i take your point and it is something we can look at in our, our work plan thank yeah I think, I think i think that is an important point we as i mentioned we we do have a dedicated work stream to look at funding and mazen um which i think i think would really warrant in there a look at the comparability with the model in education, and certainly if there are issues that we can highlight there and, and address, uh, I think that would be that would be really worthwhile. Um, I think just to very briefly touch then on your on your second point in terms of the sort of you know the the um, areas for expansion, perhaps. Um, absolutely, we, we're we're very keen uh, to do that. I think I think the problem has been is that there are very few of those areas at, at present. Now we do. Uh, you know, in terms of the declining numbers in AT and FE, um, we do have some suspicions around you know what um, what the determining factors are behind that. And actually, one of the key factors is actually purely demographics. We believe because um, it, you know we're we're right at the minute in a dip in terms of the number of uh, eighteen-year-olds. Um, so the, the, there's obviously a sort of smaller pool, if you like, for for the schools, colleges, and university to draw upon so that, that that is we believe a factor behind this but um you know we we expect that that trend will start to reverse over the coming years so um again it's about looking to the future and about making sure our provision in future years can match up to that and, and that's a, that's a key key part of this review um, it's an interesting point you make in relation to the fact that maybe you don't have as big a pool of 18-year-olds as you would have had in previous years. And I know certainly for um, the Department of Education, again, when they're when they're looking at um, uh, admittance and sustainable sustainable schools policies, they actually take into account um, uh, birth rate um, to, to, to understand if there actually will be a population, you know, in the next five years, you know, primary school age anyway, um, uh, to, to, to fill those spaces that they have. It's, I'm just interesting, is, is that is that a factor um, 18 years after birth rates that you're looking at, potentially in terms of understanding the number of places that are required? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, of course, there, there are public sector expenditure questions around Mazen and it is, I mean, again, linking it um, to the forthcoming skills strategy. Um, we have a very, you know, we have a focus there in terms of looking at the sustainability of the financial model behind, um, you know, behind the, the higher education sector. And, and absolutely that, that will be, that demographic question will have a really important part to play in that. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think I, I, I think just on that point, and I'm sorry if I'm digressing slightly from the topic, but 
I do think on that point and in terms of the funding and sustainability model, there, there is a slight danger um, that we we oversimplify the narrative there in terms of it becoming, you know, sort of just increase the Mazen number alongside the population number when actually, and it's been touched on already in this session, um, you know, the, the answer here I don't think is necessarily a straightforward more more young people going to university. I think yeah. that's where this review where I think it's very important is that those alternative pathways have to be seen absolutely as just as valuable and just as worthwhile a pathway for, for young people. So, you know, rather than looking at it as a, you know, mat, you know a sort of a flat increase across the board, I think there's absolutely a role for, for level four and level five here to say, well, you know, mm -hmm. there's a place where actually we're not, we're not utilizing mm -hmm. all of the mass in that space. There's, there's slack in the system, if you like, and, and, Trying to encourage and trying to advertise that that provision, I think, is a really, really important part of of the solution there. Yeah, no, no, I agree, and I think it has to be proportionate to you know the types of people who are actually attending um, uh, these levels of education. Um, you know, particularly when you know the minister's comments around lifelong learning, it won't just be you know eighteen year olds. So no, I, I I do appreciate that. But to come back to my original question, are there any courses that you're seeing um, more demand for, like specific subjects, and is is that reflective of I suppose what industry wants, or just reflective of of the interests of the of the particular group that's accessing this level of education? Um, I, I think that might be something uh, um, we might um, take away and reflect on. I don't have figures in front of me. I do know, uh, in terms of specific courses, I do know that there has been some growth. Um, uh, some of the work that CIA have undertaken for us in the qualification space, they noted that um, OCN, the Open College Network, have seen actually quite quite a big growth in the level four, level five space over, over recent years. Um, as I say, it's all... It's all in the context of a declining enrollment across the board, you know. So the the marketplace has shrunk, but within that, OCN have grown, have grown their provision. But um, perhaps if uh, um, if you would find it useful, we can reflect on that and maybe maybe come back in writing yeah. if there are any any particular trends there. Yeah, no, no, I would appreciate that in specific subjects as well. I'm just keen to understand where you know where, where the interest is and is that something that we then build upon. But no, look, thank you. I'm happy to. To come back on that one. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Claire. And can I just pick up on a point there in relation to the Mazen? Um, that's a specific work stream of the, the review. So I was just wondering how this kind of ties into the broader skills strategy work. Um, and are you considering getting rid of Mazen completely um, and just making sure, and this is a very simplistic way of looking at it, but making sure that the provision um, is there right across the, the spectrum of, of levels? So that you know, people do know that level four or five are there. You know, we have lots of young people who can't get into university here and are going to do degrees in, in uh, universities or colleges in England when you know their best interest may be in taking on level four, level five courses here locally. So how is it that we actually make that happen? Um, I, I can't speak directly in terms of of the, the thinking at the minute in terms of the HE funding model, other than to say, um, I, I do think a fundamental look is what is planned there. So so I don't think there are any sort of prejudged outcomes. Um, and I do think it's an area um, where the department will be will be working closely with the independent review of education because we see we see it as part of a you know a holistic look 
across the the whole education sector. Um, so so that that's I think that's as much as I can say on the the longer term thinking around Mazen. Um, I think um, just uh, sorry to come back to um, to to your other point in terms of um, young people um, sort of migrating um, for for education purposes. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we have been engaging with Pivotal, who've been doing some really interesting work in this space. Um, and I thought it was really interesting to note that um, in, in terms of the work they've done there, they they see it as a very complex picture in terms of the, the rationale for young people uh, in terms of choosing to to go to, to, you know, to England, for instance, for, for a degree. Um, and in fact, um, Figures that we would have from UCAS would suggest that the majority of those who do who do um, go there um, are what we would call determined leavers, and actually they've never applied to to university in Northern Ireland. Um, so, so you know, I think it's I think it's in the region of around eighty percent of those in the last year um, who went who went to to GB um, were were in that determined leaver category. But what Pivotal would would point to and and this is what we discussed last week with them, was um, the sort of complex range of factors behind that in terms of a better student experience, something that, they, they, that would be really um, beneficial in, in attracting our young people to stay here, um, but also actually a driving force behind them leaving Northern Ireland or staying away from Northern Ireland, indeed, after they've, after they've graduated. Is is a negative view in terms of uh, sort of segregation and divide, um, you know, in society here. So, so there's quite a complex picture there, and it's not purely down to sort of Mazen or directly sort of skills and education issues. There, there is a sort of wider Northern Ireland as an attractive place to to live and work, um, which absolutely comes into play here. No, and I, I think that that is a really important challenge to to, I suppose, all of us in respect of um, attracting students to stay here. And, and I appreciate it is a much more complex uh, uh, picture. And, and my question was very simplistic in, in that respect. But no, it's useful to get that, um, uh, I suppose, overview of that. Can we bring Sinead into the spotlight, please? Thank you very much, uh, Elaine and Jamie, for your briefing so far. And a lot of the issues have actually been covered, and it's a really welcome um, time to have this review. Uh, skills uh, development is uh, very close to my heart, uh, and you know it's just good to see that there is alignment, and that you're looking at the skills strategy and the energy strategy, and looking at the widening pathways and uh, and lifelong learning, and it all playing in, and obviously uh, uh, careers development as well with, within the schools and or career provision um, uh, elsewhere as well. Um, in in relation to uh, regional balance. Uh, you know, have you looked at the technological universities within the Republic of Ireland and um, their policies in order to kind of um, align and bring together that further and higher education through through that pathway? Uh, and have you um, have have you any thoughts on, on the way that uh, the Republic of Ireland are actually developing this um, this level four level? 
five provision within within um, mm -hmm. the, the, their um, their education strategy. Sorry, a message coming through there. So, um, have have you looked at that, Jamie? Um, thank you. Um, it, it's not something I've looked in detail at. Um, it's not something we've looked at yet in terms of this specific piece of work. I do. Um, as part of my role, I do sit um, on the uh, Derry City Strabane Council um, Education and Skills Partnership, which brings together brings together the college up there, um, uh, the, the university, business, uh, um, business and industry up there, uh, and there is there is a lot of work ongoing in terms of Northwest Partnership up there, and that is that is certainly the technical. Um, College question has been raised there, and is something that that is a live issue and something that we're we're looking at absolutely. Um, I think in terms of you know the, the question of regional balance here, I think what we've really hit on in terms of the role and the unique selling point of ATE and FE absolutely has a role to play in regional balance because of course we have regions that don't have universities, um, but they do have um, you know, what we believe are world leading. Further education colleges and, and some excellent facilities available. I think um, I think Banbridge uh, Circ campus was, was opened a couple of weeks ago, showcasing some some really um, fantastic facilities. So uh, I think I think there is a really important role to play, and we see actually sort of the unique selling point of AT and FE is that um, you can get these really high valued, really worthwhile qualifications. Um, and you don't have to, to you know, sort of migrate to one of the big universities for it. You know, it's sort of on your doorstep, if you like. So, so I think th there is a there is an important selling point in here, in terms of that regional piece. Yeah, and I mean we're particularly lucky in the northwest as well because we have got a, a very very good innovative um, college here. Uh, but it's really important, you know, within the context of this view that if we don't have colleges competing um, with uh, at one end schools uh, and at the other end with with universities, you know, there has to be a really clear pathway um, within the colleges what they are for and their purpose and I think sometimes that's where the confusion is um, you know people nearly try like ignore what the offering is and absolutely think that it has to be about uh, going to university where in actual fact some of our FA colleges are delivering um, even higher standards than, than some of the universities and some of the, the, the particular courses and that's not always terribly clear. So I'm hoping that this review um, gets a little bit uh, down uh, and starts to actually be very, very clear um, and articulate the pathways um, much better than, than, than is happening currently. And I do believe that there is a lot more collaboration taking place between um, RFE and HE colleges, but there still isn't enough. 
uh, and we have seen, I mean, I have seen a, a lot of competition actually happening and, and, and last year as a result of COVID and as a result of, of the mess within the Department for Education regarding, um, regarding qualifications, etc. You know, our FE colleges felt that their, their nose was put out of joint because a lot of people were going to universities uh, instead of even looking at the colleges and their numbers did slump. So I think this review is very, very timely. I feel it, 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 it fits in with, with um, you know, um, our wider ambitions in, in relation to skills development within Northern Ireland. But um, I still think that there's a lot, uh, a lot more that we could be looking at, uh, and we could look, be looking at international best or best um, practice. Uh, and uh, Stuart indicated that earlier, looking at the the German model as well, and. Um, at, and Claire talked about the funding models uh, of FE and, and HE and indeed um, our schools. We can't compete, FE colleges can't compete with the, the, the salaries and wages within schools as well. Uh, and yet they're competing in terms of courses and the delivering of courses. So there's a lot of work to be done uh, to pull it all together. But thank you. Thanks, Sinead. Um, can I just ask a final question there in relation to, you mentioned the um, the Northwest skills uh, group is that something that is being replicated across other areas is it in specifically in relation to the growth deal um, and obviously maybe you can't answer that in respect of specific growth deals just yet that are still developing their programs but is it something that's being planned yeah um, there, there's uh, it touches actually on a chair on a really important point um, within the the proposal in the, the new skills strategy, which is to look at actually the governance uh, of skills and education across the board. Um, and within that, um, the, the, the concept of um, establishing a, a skills council um, to sort of sit at the top of that governance structure, but actually um, then sub-regional um, skills structures uh, underneath that. Um, so so there, there is a piece of work there to try and streamline and, and deliver a more effective governance model there um, in terms of those sub-regional structures and what we're really keen to do actually on that is, and, and I should say this is this is absolutely a sort of proposal stages and it's still in discussion but um, we've been working closely with the Department for Communities who have established um, in the current year uh, local labour market partnerships um, which are structures that would sit uh, within each of the kind so there is, um, and that would then, um, I suppose, if you like, provide the, the on the ground um, skills and employability intel and knowledge um, to to feed up to the to the regional structures. So we're working really closely um, with, with communities on that, and, and I think had good collaboration there. Um, and just just to touch on the uh, the partnership, um, which I'm a member of. Um, in the Derry uh, the area, um, yes, it is. Um, it does have linkages into the city and growth deal, um, uh, and uh, as far as I understand it, there are some plans in uh, in mid south west and Causeway Coast and Glens to to you know maybe have some some similar type of structure, uh, and there is a similar structure already in uh, in the Belfast uh, region city deal as well. So. Um, th th there's quite a bit out there. Um, if I'm honest with you, I think um, the governance piece 
in the skills strategy is vitally important in, in drawing a lot of those threads together because at, at the minute I feel like it is possibly a little bit fragmented. Um, Jamie, thanks for that. That's actually really um, interesting to know in relation to the local labour market um, issue in, in local council areas. Is that mm -hmm. something maybe we could seek to get a wee bit more information about, um, Peter? So look, um, I don't have any more members coming in for questions at the minute. So look, thanks very much for, for the update. It has been very useful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, do we want to pick up on any issues now, Peter? Chair, I have a number of um, issues that members have asked for specifics on. Those will go into our Dallow readout. But also um, some, some just general issues and concerns members have raised more broadly that might be worth flagging up to the minister as part yeah. of the, the scrutiny of what we've heard so far, if members are content. Yeah. Okay. Thank yes, thank you. Thank you. Okay, um, so we're going to move on then to item number five, which is our briefing from NI Tourism Alliance um, on an update on the tourism recovery. There is a clerk's memo at page 290 of your pack. There is a clerk's memo from the meeting originally scheduled for the 10th of May at page 294 of our pack. There's a written ministerial statement from TEO on decisions of the executive and COVID-19 restrictions at page 298. An update from NIDA on the regulations for the 24th of May reopening at page 300. And an update on, from NIDA on international travel at page 308. And I see Joanne's already in the spotlight there. Good morning. Or are we still morning? Yeah, we are. Um, if I hand over to yourself, Joanne, and sorry for keeping you, you waiting there, um, the last brief from Joanne. Uh, no problem. Um, good morning, Chair, and um, thank you for the opportunity um, to brief the committee uh, today. Obviously, this is um, a great week. Um, we got most of uh, tourism um, opened up um, on Monday, um, which is brilliant. So all of the rest of uh, tourism accommodation, um, and we're starting to see um, museums opened yesterday, attractions such as Titanic opening tomorrow. So by the end of the week, we'll have most of the industry um, open. Um, demand is looking good, particularly from the home market, um, which is really encouraging. Um, and uh, we're working towards now the 21st of June, um, which we're hoping we'll see the reopening or restart of business conferences and exhibitions and the opening of theatres and, and the arts sector, um, which is um, a really important part of creating that full experience um, for people who are visiting. So um, it's been really positive. Um, there are some challenges, which I'll, I'll just quickly um, go through and then happy to take um, any questions. So um, I suppose following the briefing that you have just had, um, one of the real challenges is skills and accessing talent. Um, for the tourism, travel and hospitality um, industry. Obviously, you've heard um, with the opening of the pubs and restaurants um, that um, you know there, there are a lot of organisations who are trying to recruit uh, people. Um, but we're also seeing that within the hotel sector, um, within the coach sector, particularly drivers, um, and food and beverage for the likes of attractions, etc. So we have a number of attractions that we provide food and beverage. So the skills is, um, is a real challenge. Um, we uh, obviously work with the Hospitality and Tourism Skills Network, which is managed by Roisin McKay. She's been working very closely with the Department of the Skills Strategy. Um, and again, I think uh, it may be worth um, at some point in the future, we're having an update from Roisin with regards to what is 
what is being done to attract people back um, into um, tourism, uh, travel and, and hospitality, um, but also about how we develop um, the, the skills of people that are already in the industry. The other challenge then is the capacity restrictions. Obviously, we're still working with um, social distancing mitigations, um, and that means that particularly for the likes of indoor attractions, um, you're only able to operate um, at 30% capacity. Um, that also will affect things such as the Giants Causeway, where you've got the visitor centre. Um, so that um, does put a constraint on those businesses um, to to get um, a, a, you know the the volume of visitors um, through their doors. Uh, we're waiting then um, with interest of the announcement from Boris Johnson um, with regards to the lifting of all restrictions in England, uh, which is expected around the 21st of June. Um, and we'll see what that says and how that may then apply uh, across into Northern Ireland. Um, the other um, challenge um, that we're, we're now sort of working through is the um, guidance um, is slightly different from last year. Um, so it has there has been quite a bit of work working through the regulations, which we only got a few days um, before we were due to reopen. So there have been some changes to the likes of contact tracing, um, the likes of table service only, um, not just in restaurants, but in, in cafes, etc. So it's uh, it's just you know as as it was before, um, you know just making sure that um, that all the regulations are are being followed. The other issue then, um, and I'm sure if you listen to the Nolan show or or talk back yesterday, uh, obviously we have been raising the issue, and you will have seen these on my updates with regards to the guidance on travel within the common travel area. That changed from Monday, um, where there is. Um, you could travel for any reason, um, but there is different advice depending on that, the reason that you're traveling. So if you're visiting family and friends, um, you don't need to self-isolate on your return um, to Northern Ireland, but the advice is to have lots of flow tests. But obviously if you're traveling as a visitor um, from a tourism perspective, um, then the advice continues to be that you self-isolate for 10 days. Um, this has caused um, a lot of uh, confusion um, for people. Um, and uh, we've been engaging with the department, we've written to executive ministers and the Minister of Health um, with regards to this advice um, and asking for it to be um, reviewed. Obviously, we would like to see um, that travel was permitted um, throughout the travel area without the, um, the, the, sort of the guidance that's been put in place. Um, the, the biggest thing that it causes for us is the inability to promote Northern Ireland outside of Northern Ireland. Um, obviously, we can't be seen to encourage people um, to travel when there is guidance um, saying that you must self-isolate or that you should self-isolate if you're visiting for leisure purposes. Um, this will have um, a big impact on the um, the demand for this year, although we've seen great support from our home market and lots of staycations, um, that will not sustain the industry. We need our visitors from GB, we need the visitors from the Republic of Ireland, and then obviously later on in the year we would hope to be able to welcome international visitors. So, um, so that's a, a big challenge and obviously we know that will be reviewed again tomorrow. So all of those just um, go towards the challenge of financial viability for businesses. Um, I mean, they, you know, we're all in that recovery mode, um, but a lot of businesses are have a, a debt burden um, that they've taken on over the last 15 months. 
uh, and obviously with the lack of um, unable to have full capacity um, and unable to generate demand from visitors outside of Northern Ireland, all of those come together to, um, to cause concern around ongoing financial viability. But in a, a, another positive um, note was the um, a, a launch by the Minister of the 10x economy, the economic vision, um, and we were delighted to see that um, really for the first time, you know, tourism um, was seen there as uh, the, the central plank of the place um, theme and the importance of tourism to really generate, um, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, to, to encourage people to come to Northern Ireland, not just to visit, um, but to work um, and to and to live. And uh, we're looking forward to working with um, the Minister um, and the Department on the development of that, uh, of that moving forward. So those are just my opening comments and obviously happy to take any questions. Um, Joanne, thank you very much for that. And I suppose just to pick up on the the common travel area stuff. First of all, I, I, like my understanding is that that's you know in relation to the health advice, um, and that that's where the issue currently is. Um, so happy for the committee to write to the health minister and just seek some clarification around that as well, if members are agree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I suppose just to ask a couple of questions. Um, in relation to the, the holiday at home voucher, have you had in much engagement in mm. relation to how that's going to, to roll out and how it's going to actually work for, for tourism providers? Um, not really, other than what is in the public domain chair. Um, so we know that that will be the autumn, um, really, that um, that is going to be in place. It will be a first come, first serve, but we're not aware of how much of a fund is available so that you could even sort of work out how many people um, that would be for. But we do know that it's £100 towards a two night um, overstay. Say um, at home, um, and also there will be um, twenty pounds or up to fifty percent towards um, a, an experience or a visit to an attraction. So it means that um, you can create a nice break with uh, with some activities in that. But other than that, we're not aware of exactly how it will work. Yeah, no, I, I guess I asked the question because we're not particularly sure either, and and I guess we we do want to get some answers to some of those things that you've just pointed out there yourself. In particular, how the, the first come first serve bit is going to mm. work, and also in relation to the attractions that can use it, is that anything? Has there been any kind of discussion around that bit of it? The the actual attractions that will be eligible for the twenty point voucher. Well, it's a sort of a attraction stroke experiences. So um, again, there's no definition yeah. of what that will cover and what type of activities. And um, so that is something that um, we're waiting on more information on. No, that's grand. Um, and then just, I suppose, the, the Lucid Talk poll um, recently showed, what was it, only 31% of people would consider going abroad this year. Now, maybe that will change over time, but I suppose that kind of shows that there's huge potential there for the staycation market. So i just wondering, is there, a, a, I guess, a strategy from yourselves and, and to how you, to maximise that? Um. Oh, yes, um, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of there will be people who will want to go abroad and others who, who want to leave it um, maybe to later on the year or next year. Um, so obviously, Tourism and I have, um, have kick-started their campaign to encourage people um, to stay at home. And what I will say is a lot of the tourism businesses have looked at their products and services that they're providing um, and making that for... Um, uh, 
more um, to, sort of towards the um, domestic market, maybe rather than the international market. So, um, and we are seeing good um, demand, but um, as I say, there is a concern that um, although the home market will be very good, it will not be able to replace um, those visitors from outside of Northern Ireland that we would normally, um, you know, have to take us to a, a billion point um, industry. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And then I, I guess the issue that you mentioned around skills and, and have seen a fair wee bit in the press around that this week as well, um, you know, difficulties getting people for positions and all of that, something we, we would like to probably explore with you in, in more detail at, at some point as well, um, kind of fit into our broader skills work. So that's something maybe we can come back to, to you in respect of. Oh, absolutely, Chair. And as I said, um, also the um, Roshi McKay, who runs a hospitality and tourism skills network. So we would work with her and she does that engagement with the department. So um, absolutely, we more than welcome that. Yep, great. Stuart, do you want to? Yeah, thank you. Um, Good morning. Yes, still is. Good morning, Joanne. And uh, you were a great star on the radio yesterday. Uh, heard, heard all your, your comments um, uh, at lunchtime. There is a lot of confusion still out there, both in relation to people coming into Northern Ireland from other parts of the common travel area and also people moving out of Northern Ireland in the common travel area as well. Uh, Maybe just a comment. We can only hope that the executive will start to give some clarification to this when they meet tomorrow. Uh, but actually, from your point of view, how urgent is it that you get that clarification? Because this business of being able to visit family and friends, but uh, if it's for some other reason, then you have to go through a different set of circumstances, all seems fairly con convoluted. And basically, people will just simply turn around and say, yeah, I'm visiting family and friends. Um, um Yes, um, Stuart, uh, we, we would like to, to see some movement on that, um, you know, from the executive meeting tomorrow. Um, it is very urgent. Um, you know, I'm um, engaging with all of my members and where the amount of queries that are coming in on the back of that um, travel advice and the number of cancellations um, that are being made. It's, it's not very clear that this is about personal responsibility. Um, it's about, you know, you, you understanding your own circumstances um, and also the, the way that the advice is in an I direct. I think people think they have to pay for tests. Yeah. Um, so it, it is just a, a completely confusing picture. Um, obviously, from our perspective, generating demand for the summer season, um, you know, we haven't run a GB campaign as yet, um, and the earliest we're going to be able to do that is going to be mid to end June. Um, and uh, you know, we, we need to be able to to run that campaign and, um, and and generate that demand. But I mean, the executive and and, and obviously the Department of Health, um, you know, put forward the proposals. It is obviously the um, decision of all of the executive ministers what way they want to take it forward. Um, but it, for me, it's not doing anything at the moment. Um, if there are real concerns um, from a health perspective, um, then that should be much clearer. Um, at the moment, it's just, a, you know, what's the difference between visiting family and friends and coming as a, as a visitor? In some cases, people would say, you're going to be more intimate um, in intimate settings with family and friends than you maybe would be as a tourist. Mm -hmm. um, we're also obviously very clear that the amount of um, investment that's been made by tourism businesses, you know, ensure that anybody is coming over um, and is visiting places and, and having different experiences. It's in a very safe um, environment um, and we're doing everything to mitigate, obviously, the 
transmission. So we would love to see it lifted completely, that uh, people are able to travel um, throughout the uh, common travel area without the need for any self-isolation or testing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and actually, many tourists coming into Northern Ireland will mentally do a checklist. And it usually is the standard of accommodation, really good. The word yeah. is they're going to, the Giants Causeway, the Antrim Coast, wherever it happens to be, excellent. But I actually think that people will do an extra tick mark this year, and that will be the standard of hygiene and courtesy and the way in which they've been treated over COVID, hand washing, gel facilities, uh, masks, not masks, yeah. um, all of those things tourists will also pick up and notice as well. We have a very high standard of that here. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it is important that, that, that the industry that rightly does what it does and that we should indeed ar arguably market some of that as well. Um, even more confusion, lateral flow tests, which uh, are required for some travel arrangements currently. In England... They're free. Anybody could walk into a local community pharmacy and just pick up half a dozen. Most chemist shops will hand them out to you. In Northern Ireland, as my understanding is, you have to buy them. Um, in fact, they're not available in Northern Ireland except possibly through some employers. Well, uh, well, funny, I have just been engaging with the department on that and actually I've suggested some changes to the NI Direct wording. Um, you can get free tests, but you have to order them through the gov.uk site um, and, um, and they will send you seven tests out. So, um, and that's not very clear. And actually, I, I was sent a couple of queries yesterday where people said, you know, it's going to cost me money for the tests. So um, I am not aware from a community pharmacy perspective, to be honest, Stuart, um, but I do know that you can order online free mm -hmm. lateral flow yeah. tests, well, which I, are obviously completely different from the PCR tests. Well, yes, yes, but I do know, uh, speaking to colleagues in England, that they are definitely freely available in community pharmacies. That's how many of them are being distributed. Now, granted, it, it is actually in the Liverpool area, so that was probably one of the areas where around Christmas they were doing a lot of extra uh, work but they are available on that front um, the Well I would appreciate then Stuart obviously if maybe you could uh, as, a, as a committee maybe raise that with yes, the Minister because absolutely. that, I absolutely. mean if we had something like that, that would again it just makes it so much easier for people to pick them up, we know those tests only take you know a few seconds That's and then right. you get your result um, yeah. so that would be Fantastic. It would. The, the, the other thing then is, and I suppose in a sense this, this isn't in, it directly in your area, but you will receive queries about it, it's the whole issue of vaccination certificates from Northern Ireland. I asked the First Minister in the House two weeks ago uh, what was happening in respect of that, because NHS UK uh, have got an app. Now, it's not the COVID app. It, everybody in the rest of the UK, apart from Northern Ireland, has got an NHS app, So it and it, it contains information about your GP and pharmacy and prescriptions and all sorts of stuff. And quite simply, they're adding COVID vaccination certificates to that. So if you live in England and you want to prove that you've been vaccinated, you use your NHS app. We don't have an NHS app in Northern Ireland. The First Minister seemed to think that I was asking her something about adding it to the Northern Ireland COVID app, which is not, not simply not a practical yeah. proposition because technically that's not what it does. I then wrote to the health minister 
And I've got a written answer from the Health Minister in relation to um, um, vaccination certification. Now, what he told me was that they are in the process of procuring secure, printed vaccination certificates for people who want them. But they're not ready or available, and they're really not still quite sure how they're going to make them available in Northern Ireland. Is that not going to be very frustrating for people? It is, and it is something that um, we we also wrote to the Minister of Health about. Um, you know, it needs to be it needs to be easy for people to obviously to get access to their vaccination um, status. Now, I know we all got the be card or the, the sort of cards um but uh i don't know about yours but mine's a little bit dog-eared already um so um yes it, it's it's something that again just makes the process so much easier for people there's not again something they've got to try and find and and if they've forgotten to request it so we would love to see um and we have asked for you know um, an update on having a digital system available in northern ireland and yeah. um, exactly the same as it is across the rest of the uk yeah. And I guess, actually, in fairness to you, this is more a question for travel agents because most travel now is actually booked online. And, you know, UK-based travel agents, if you want to travel to Portugal or, or Spain, hopefully in a few weeks' time, um, you will need a digital vaccination certificate. And if you live in England, Scotland or Wales, you can have one. In Northern Ireland, we're waiting some time for a piece of secure paper. Final question to you, Joanne, in relation to... Sorry, just 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 can I just sort of say that sorry, sorry. So um, we cover tourism and travel. So APTA, for example, are one of our members, which covers all of the travel agents, and we have airlines as well. So it will impact on those um, organisations because this information needs to be checked, it and does. obviously it's easier for everybody if you can check that digitally. Absolutely. Uh, just one final question, Chair, uh, in relation to the vouchers, and I think. You're right. We're, we're all looking forward to what they're going to do and what the detail of them is going to be. But I suppose there are, there are two sort of questions that pop up in my mind. Is A lot of people, hopefully, by the Halloween break, will want to get staycations and visits around Northern Ireland that weekend, and perhaps they'll be in place by then. How can we be assured, and this is maybe uh, turning the tables on you, how can we be assured that your industries will not inflate or make the vouchers uh, make access to using them conditional on, on other things like having to stay so many nights or having to spend so much in order to get the value out of the voucher. <sighs> Um, well, you know, industry, um, as you said right at the start, is about providing a service and, and quality of service um, and that people want to return. Um, and so therefore, it's really important that you treat people fairly. Yeah. Um, and I certainly, you know, would be, um, you know, happy to say that um, the industry would not be taking advantage um, of that. Obviously, the criteria with regards to how you can use them, that will be set by yeah. Tourism and I and the department. Um, that's not going to be set by industry. They won't have a say in that. Um, but is anything that is, you know, something that we will work on with the um, industry just to ensure that, you know, people um, are able to get a good quality and a good value for money, um, you know, stay um, towards the end of the year. Thank you very much. Thank you. Chair. Thanks, Stuart. Can we bring John Stuart into the spotlight, please? I can't hear him. John, you're on mute. 
Uh, I did press it. Sorry, I'll start it again. Um, thanks, Chair. Uh, thanks, Joanne, for your presentation. I'm assuming you can hear me now, okay? Yeah? Yes. Yeah, good stuff. Um, just firstly, to commend you and, and you all your colleagues for, you know, your continuous advocacy on behalf of the industry. Um, you've done a really good job in what is obviously a very difficult time. Um, you know, and hats off again to the industry for all the efforts they put in to get open again safely. We, we complimented them last year on that ongoing um, work and nothing has changed. And I think they, um, they're a credit to themselves for, for, for the way they're getting on. Um, just a couple of points. Um, in terms of, you know, we've already talked about the issues relating to travel in from the common travel area, and hopefully we will get clarity, as you've said, Joanne, around that soon. I'm just wondering anecdotally from your members, what sort of interest are you hearing from people wanting to travel in for tourism specifically from either the common travel area or outside in the Northern Ireland? Is there growing consumer confidence? And is you know, there, there is. Um, I mean, there is demand um, there. It's not, not as much as it would have been, obviously, if we've been proactively marketing. But, um, you know, when you look at, um, you know, certain, um, you know, different attractions and, and hotels, there certainly um, are a lot of bookings um, from GB and from the Republic of Ireland, you know, later on. Um, now, what we have seen cancellations, obviously, with the guidance coming into effect on Monday. Um, so we've yet to see what the impact um, will be. But I say, without being able to generate more demand, that, that will be, that is a real concern for the industry. Okay. Um, and is, is a lot of that interest as well predicated upon what people can do once they get here? So like the theatres reopening and other, other amenities like that and museums reopening, do you think that's going to generate more oh, interest? Definitely. Well? I mean, when people... Yeah, when people want, they want an experience. And obviously, um, you know, people did want hotels to be open and attractions and different experiences. And really, that the the, present, the, the majority of that is now from Monday. Um, so uh, you will see that people want to come over. J just to put it into context, um, you know, travellers from GB, um, you know, would be about 35% um, of our, our normal um, market. Um, so again, that's our biggest market. So it is, uh, it is an important market for everybody in the industry. Okay. Um, moving though to what will no doubt be a massive part of the industry this year, and that is the stay-at-home message and, you know, and, and the staycations. And um, the chair and Stuart have touched on the home holiday voucher scheme. I'm just curious, Joanne, to get your feel for how you think that should be rolled out. If you could get a message to the minister, how, I have no fears, by the way, maybe that the industry will abuse that in any way. I think given the way they've handled themselves, they will use it to, to strengthen the industry and to provide people with the service and destinations they want to go to. But how would you like to see it promoted and used? And do you think it should be overlapping with the high street voucher scheme to be able to maximise revenue for the sector? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's it's sort of all we have to see how it does go with the sort of the first month or so, um, and how the bookings are holding up. Um, obviously, what we want to do is we want to extend the length of the season, um, and you know, traditionally, you know, from sort of September onwards, it would, would start to slope down. So um, we can, uh, I can see the benefit of doing it, you know, towards the end of the summer to help to generate that demand. Um, but I think we do need to to monitor this and see if the say the bookings are holding up. Um, with regards to the, the high street um, stimulation package, obviously that will include the hospitality piece. So um, again, for people who are maybe visiting, you know, a new city or a different, um, you know, the, the coast will want to have a hotel stay, will want to go and do something, but also will want to eat and drink. 
So, um, you know, I, I suppose there is there definitely is benefit of, of having um, all of that together. Okay. And final point from me, Chair, um, if you indulge me in this one, Joanne. Um, it's great to see hoteliers are coming out and saying that they are booked up now and people are starting to have more and more confidence, but there are certain parts of the sector, like in like independent travel agents and consultants who are still really struggling, but, but, but seemingly the financial support is starting to dry up, if not being closed. Yeah. Do you think it's yeah. imperative that that supply of financial assistance remains while certain parts of the sector get back on their feet? Um, I do. I think the um, the financial support really has closed very quickly. Um, there, there really has been no transition between being closed and then starting to sort of ramp up your opening. You know, especially as we've seen with the challenge with skills. You know, some um, organisations are talking about reducing opening hours. You know, because they just don't have the staff. Because actually, providing table service in a lot of situations has increased the number of staff that, um, that they that they need. So, um, and with regards to obviously the travel agents, uh, starting to see a little bit more business as green countries um, have been now announced in, in Northern Ireland. Um, but obviously, we would like to see that list grow. Um, mm-hmm. And I know there's talk of maybe Spain coming on um, in the in the next um, announcement from um, DB, um, and and we'd like to see that um, put in because it's it's that it, it's just it's generating that activity. Um, that is going to then generate the, the financial um, viability of these businesses. But it is something that we need to monitor um, with regards to the support that is required by businesses. Businesses will not be back to um, normal within 12 months or one season. Um, they've taken on huge debt to get through the last 15 months. And I think there needs to be consideration of how we ensure their long term um, viability. I absolutely agree. And I think it would be such a shame having supported many of them to this point that the financial support dries up just as the time they need it, whenever they can see, you know, the end in sight. And I think if there's one thing Chair would give me do another thing, sorry, at this meeting to be right to the Minister of Finance and of the Economy just to ask what other support mechanisms can be put in place um, to give that, you know, um, help in hand until everyone does get back on their feet within the sector. That'll be very helpful. But thanks, Joanne, I'll let somebody else come in. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Joanne. Thank you. Gary into the spotlight, please. Thanks, Chair, and uh, thanks, Joanne, uh, for uh, coming along today. And obviously, uh, like like others, I want to uh, thank you and congratulate you and your team for uh, the way in which you've uh, represented um, the, 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 the industry. And I think that that, that has to be said. Uh, I, I share your concerns around the travel piece. I think that it's now getting to the stage where there's just no credibility in it. Uh, I think that, that you know, even in terms of calls uh, to, to my office today, uh, the amount of people who uh, are, are just unsure about the guidance, um, you know, they, they um, you know, they can't believe that. Well, you can go for family and friends, but you, you know, when you when you come back here, you'll have, you'll have to. Uh, if you don't go for family and friends, you come back here, you'll have to isolate for ten days. And I think it's it's uh, it needs to be resolved. And I take your point around it uh, being a, a political decision as well, because. Like all of these things, uh, you know, in order for the public to get behind, um, you know, some of the guidance and some of the rules, then they need to understand what the medical basis for it is. Um, and you know, unless that medical basis is there, then, then you know, it's very difficult for people to stand over. So I do hope that uh, political parties and the executive on Thursday will uh, get behind um the, the the changes and bring that into effect because it's very difficult to as you've said for the economy minister to 
provide a marketing campaign through Tourism MA and through Tourism Ireland if, if you know, people have to exit it for 10 days. So that's, that's the first thing. The other thing, it's good to see a lot of the industry open. Obviously, um, you know, on Monday, there was a lot of excitement, particularly the hotels. Uh, any that I have been in, I, I was in one in Belfast on Monday, um, and uh, the atmosphere was fantastic, and, and it's good to see people out and about, so we need to encourage that. The executive meeting on Thursday, uh, Joanne, what other, I, I take it there's a number of priorities, okay, uh, you, you know, the financial assistance being one of them. But are there any other particular priorities that you would recommend? Look, the executive on Thursday, you need to get this sorted uh, as a matter of urgency. What would be your sort of the top priorities that you would make in the case for uh, to that executive on Thursday? Okay, obviously we'll take out financial and travel if we say those obviously are my are my top priorities. Um, but um, obviously about. Um, having clarity on the um, guidance and getting the go-ahead for the 21st of June um, for the restart of conferences, exhibitions and the art sector is, is really critical. Um, and we want to be in a situation where we have the guidance in well in advance um, of that um, opening date. So that is, um, is, is really um, important. Um, the other thing um, is around how what is the plan to try and reduce the necessary mitigations? As I've said, obviously, currently, the capacity for all organisations is much reduced to what they would have normally had pre-COVID. Now, I, I absolutely understand that, um, you know, you know, the health, um, you know, and we have to ensure that we're not doing anything um, that would... Um, you know, put anybody at risk or increase the transmission, but it would be good to see what the plan is from the executive um, with regards to, again, following on from maybe what England um, are going to do um, and, um, you know, to, to give us some idea of when we might um, be able to start increasing the capacity that we have within organisations. So I think those four things really are, are the important things for us at the moment. No, thanks for that, Joanne. And the capacity issue, that is one that has been raised. I know people are just thankful. I take your point the 21st of June, uh, and we need to get clarity on that um, ASAP as opposed to leaving it to the to the last minute. But the, the capacity that, that um, you know, up at the hotels and cafes and bars are now operating in, I know they're grateful to be open, but they need to be operating at a greater capacity. Yeah. And I think that the hope um, that has been given through the vaccine. You know, we need to see that then manifest itself in terms of how the restrictions are have uh, been played out in the public domain. So, look, thanks for that, Joanne, and uh, no doubt we'll all uh, have, have taken note of, of what you've said, and we'll be lobbying our uh, ministerial colleagues to make sure that they get the right decisions on Thursday. So, thanks, Joanne. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Thanks, Gary. Um, Claire, can we bring Claire into the spotlight, please? Uh, thank you, Chair, and good morning, Joanne. Um, really, it's just to, I suppose, concur with, with other members in relation to the comments around uh, travel within the common travel area. Um, I, like other MLAs, are being inundated just, you know, from people seeking clarity, you know, both going to GB, but then also coming across to Northern Ireland and what that means. You know, I, I think there was another MLA a couple of weeks ago in the Assembly who asked for clarity around this and, you know, was it guidance? Can it be enforced? Um, and I think the Minister, in fairness, because he doesn't want to put out the message that it can't be enforced, suggested that it was uh, guidance. Um, 
but I, I think we, we need to be more clear because I agree with Gary that it does feel like it's almost undermining the message at this point. Um, but that still doesn't stop people feeling reluctant and not wanting to book to come here mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason. Um, you know, and it's maybe not just about visiting family and friends as it isn't the case in other parts of the UK. International travel is also causing an issue as well. I'm, I'm dealing with an issue where someone is coming from... Uh, Amberless country, transitioning through a red list country, then traveling to uh, an airport who has a transit area, so they're not required to, to quarantine in a managed way at that particular airport if they were coming via London. To come to Northern Ireland, they would have to uh, quarantine in, in, in a managed hotel there for 10 days, and then when they get to Northern Ireland, that's another 10 days. And there's a reluctance then because people don't have 20 days to sit you know, in self-isolation. I do appreciate the, the necessity of it, and I appreciate those kind of sort of higher level concerns are perhaps being led by the UK government um, but I think it's all part of the piece that we need to be cognizant of um, and what we do have this odd situation where someone doesn't have to quarantine in Amsterdam but then they come into the jurisdiction of the United Kingdom and then they do and then they have to um, doubly uh, isolate them when they, when they get to their final destination in Belfast so you know, I, I think we need an, an, an awful lot of part in relation to that I think as well, just to concur with Sturt's comments around this NHS app, you know, similar um, uh, queries from constituents in relation to this. I have a concern as well um, that, yes, in the first instance, it needs to be digital first. But what about those people who don't have access to that, who, whose phone is basically used for, for sending messages and answering calls? You know, so are we limiting some people who don't have the capacity in that respect? I also think some of this is choreography and people just saying things to communications void um, and I just wish they would kind of make decisions and, and move on but um, I do appreciate everything you're saying and doing in relation to all of this because I hope it does well, I suppose it encourage our executive to put it politely to start making more sensible decisions that are not limiting Northern Ireland so perhaps it was more of a comment than anything else um, I suppose the other thing that kind of feeds into to tourism in Northern Ireland and encouraging people to come to the North Coast or, or anywhere else in Northern Ireland is the opportunities for live music. Um, there's been issues uh, raised with us with uh, hotels fed about um, hotel, uh, food buffets, that type of thing. It's all those little bits that just sort of fit, feed into that wider piece around um, staycations in Northern Ireland. And I'm yeah. just keen to hear your thoughts on those latter points. Um, yeah, there's two things um, there, Claire. Just want to to um, clarify that example you gave. Um, there is an exemption um, for people who have already had a managed quarantine, so you don't need to self isolate when you come. If you're quarantined in London, then you don't need to self isolate when you get to Northern Ireland. But the advice is that you have the test. But that's one of the exemptions um, that did come out on Monday. So at least that's yeah. that's one thing. Yeah. Um, on the on the I was just going to say that that's helpful to know as well because there's I have another situation where someone's going to Amsterdam and because they have a transit area they don't have to quarantine there so there's a useful thing in that that you can get a direct flight to Belfast rather than London where you would have to so yeah absolutely and we would like them to use that direct flight Um, so um, yeah with the um, events yeah you're absolutely right Um, and I and I think this is for all of the council areas as well you know they they put on a lot of activities um, you know for visitors you know within their areas and festivals etc so we were delighted when the communities minister obviously set up the task force and mm-hmm. um, to look at that and that's really where all of that will be um decided and i know the minister was then she wants to 
report back by June with regards to how we how we see that um, rolling out. The good thing is that the news from um, England on the events research programme, which was piloting different, obviously, live music events and different types of events, has been very positive. We're, we're still just waiting for the official report, um, but um, hopefully there will be a lot of learning out of that. Um, and Northern Ireland should be able to do things quicker because you know, there have been those um, pilot events um, and that we could take the best practice from those. But yes, we would, um, we want to see those up and running as soon as possible. Okay, great, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. Can we bring Christopher into the spotlight, please? Oh no, sorry, Sinead first, sorry. Sorry, Christopher. Thank you, uh, Chair, and thank you, Joanne, uh, as ever, for uh, your briefing. You've been real stalwart, and, um, and thank you for all of uh, your briefing documents nearly on a weekly basis for your sector, so um, they've been very useful. Uh, I, I'm just re really reiterating uh, what my colleagues have said around um, th this meeting this morning. You know, the sooner we have harmonisation, um, in relation to the uh, common travel area, um, the, the better because it is causing real confusion. And when that happens within rules and guidance, the ultimate output of that is, is people just ignore them uh, and just go on with it. Uh, and it really downplays everything that we've been trying to do uh, in protecting people um, and their health and well-being. So uh, it needs to be sorted out. It needs to be sorted out quickly. I mean, it's just a bizarre situation. You can go and visit your sister if you're from Derry. You can go and visit your sister and say Sligo um, uh, and no problem uh, but if you go down and spend a weekend in Bunkrana you have to isolate for 10 days like it's just bizarre but you can go to Portugal for a week and no problem either you know it's yeah. just stupid it's stupid and it doesn't make sense and it needs to be fixed uh, and no messing about because it's causing concern to the wider public uh, and as well we need to get on and market uh, Northern Ireland for um, RGB marketplace uh, and our common travel marketplace and we need to do that sooner than, than later because there is a lot of pent up spend uh, and people are looking for you know soft places to land uh, and to use that spend and Northern Ireland is perfect for that uh, and we need to go out there and market it ASAP. So I am looking uh, for very, very quick um, executive decisions around that. Um, hopefully tomorrow, uh, and just uh, stop all that, the nonsense and uh, and the misspeaking around it as well. Um, so um, I, I've really nothing more to say. To be honest with you, I'm just so pleased that we've got to this space this week. I'm going out today for the first time to eat in. Uh, have a bit of a late lunch um, to eat in as the first time this year, and I just can't believe it that I'll not be sitting freezing with a blanket around me and taking a cup of coffee. So um, there's a lot to celebrate. There's a lot more to do, uh, and and you're absolutely correct. We need to think about you know what financial supports that we can have around to make sure that the the, the industry gets up and moving. And there is a lot of concerns around skills, and I suppose that's maybe for a, another day because a lot of um, uh, you know, people have, have sought jobs in other sectors, have actually moved out 
of the tourism and hospitality sector in the past um, you know, 15 months uh, and the sector is quite uh, depleted at the moment. I see lots of adverts for, for uh, jobs uh, and it is a concern for the industry. And again, this uh, the, 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 the distance uh, and the restriction of numbers is also a concern. But this week, people are sighing a big relief they're open uh, and, and we'll deal with those uh, restrictions and numbers uh, in the days to come and the weeks to come as we see uh, what the, the impact of the opening is, to, uh, is having on, on the numbers in, in COVID. So well done uh, to, to you and pass it on to the sector as well, Joanne. Well, thanks, Sinead, and uh, enjoy your meal. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Sinead. Can we bring Christopher in now, please? Uh, thank you, Chair, and uh, thank you for um, your presentation and your answers uh, thus far. I think the position that we've got into in terms of where the law presently stands, it reminds me of the expression that a camel was a horse designed by a committee. And what we have had is, you know, piecemeal restrictions here, there, and everywhere, and people have been left absolutely confused. I mean, from my, from my part, I'm very clear, and I have been clear on this for quite some time, I want all of these restrictions gone as quickly as possible. Um, mention was made in relation to the issue of, I think the word passport wasn't used, but I certainly take from it this idea of digital vaccine passports. What sort of a burden would that place upon the people that you represent if people are basically asked to present their papers before they're given access? the facilities that your members provide yeah well it's um it's certainly not not something we would want to see for um you know sort of the just the sort of normal services within um tourism but um obviously our members that you know the airlines and the airports um, are already having to check that now that international travel is open and obviously um that is a requirement for some countries um, that you have to have that uh, vaccination status, um, but we certainly um, are not looking for that to, to, to really be at any lower level um, in that um, people are not able to go to a hotel or have an experience um, unless they have a certain um, uh, vaccination status. Now, it may be something that look, is looked at for events, uh, but that's obviously the task force um, that the community minister has set up um, would be looking at that, um, but I, you know, and, and we will we will take um, our uh, guidance and um, and sort of see what they say as to what that impact will be on the on the industry. It's not something that ever happens because I think it's totally out with um, the traditions of this country and the freedom that we're used to having, and I don't yeah. think that the um, internal um, sort of checks on people and their movement within their own country, which they pay tax to, and which they support um, in that way. Just in terms of where the rest of the United Kingdom is going, um, I agree with you that, um, I mean, it is important that we should be brought into line um, with their, I, I think with their um, sort of program of easing these restrictions. Thus far, I've sort of spotted a pattern of basically that, that where England goes, we probably end up there a fortnight later. Yeah. Now, a fortnight, uh, we're now in the end of May, coming into June. A fortnight is obviously, at this time of year, very, very significant for your members. Could you give me an indication of just 
what sort of an impact that would have if we are a fortnight behind. Oh, it, it, it has, because it, it's basically days of business lost, um, you know, because um, either people are able to, you know, got to wait another two weeks before they can provide additional services or, um, in effect, uh, open. And obviously, with the things like international travel, um, you know, again, it causes confusion if there's an announcement by the Prime Minister that there's another 10 countries added to the green list, um, but it doesn't apply in Northern Ireland yet. So it, again, it just creates that confused picture um, for everybody. So um, we would, and we, and we know that um, the executive or the departments are engaging with the departments in Westminster. So there shouldn't be um, any surprise of what's coming and we would like to see them just able to react quicker um, so that again there's there's clarity for everybody and obviously it is much easier if we are aligned um, across the UK and also you know with Ireland when it's appropriate um, because that just makes it easier for everybody you're not checking different um, countries and you know and, and what, what applies there so it's something I would like all of our devolved nations obviously to to see how we can better align it comes back to a question that I asked Robin Swan some time ago, which is why is Professor Whitty wrong that Dr. McBride is right? But that's not for you to answer. Um, in terms of just, I see there, um, my children will be delighted because it's our favourite place to go. I see that at the 12th of June, Ulster Folk and Transport Museum intends to open. Um, yeah. And uh, always enjoy that, especially going to what was Sandy Road back in the day. Uh, although my children will ask me, Clown Place, I was reared part of my childhood was in Clown Place. And my son had the, the gall to ask me, is this what Clown Place looked like when you were growing up? <laughs> <laughs> um, just, uh, just finally then, just to agree with what Gary has said, I, I think that it's important that we do convey sort of up the line to government ministers the need to align with where the rest of GB and indeed the ROI are going and to you know, put the foot to the floor in terms of getting these restrictions lifted in order to allow the tourism sector to uh, get back to work because I know they've taken an absolute hammering over the course of the last year and just to say thank you for all the work that you're doing in terms of trying to highlight those issues and keep them on the agenda. Thank you Chair. Thanks Christopher. Thank you Chris. Can we bring John O'Dowd into the spotlight please? Uh, thank you Chair. Uh, Joanne, my ears picked up yesterday when I heard that there was a shortage of chefs in the industry. <laughs> yes. Former chef, I, I considered my options, but I knew Christopher was very much, so I decided to stay on. Um, and but in all seriousness, what, what engagement is there with the training colleges, the department, uh, and others about training and upskilling people to work uh, in the, the catering industry, which can be and is a, a very rewarding uh, task. It, it, it is hard work. And there there yeah. can be negotiable hours, but uh, it, it is a rewarding uh, role, role in life. So what engagement is there with the various sectors about getting the um, there's um there's a lot of engagement um John and um, and obviously there's the um tourism and hospitality hub that is um managed across the six colleges by Belfast Metropolitan College um, and again something you may want a, a briefing on and where they're very much engaging with industry and identifying you know where the gaps and the needs and the you know what needs to be in the qualifications so a lot of work 
um, has been has been ongoing with that. Um, there was also, you know, they've been doing um, a lot of providing, you know, free training um, for people as they were on furlough as well to really try and keep them engaged. I think what what we're seeing though is that with this problem, um, you know, predates COVID. Um, we, you know, there has been a real challenge, especially with chefs and, and the catering industry. Um, that was has been, you know, was was highlighted as part of the um, um, the EU, the UK exiting the EU and the change in immigration um, law. And, um, and it's something that um, you know we're still engaging with um, from an immigration perspective, um, and that was one of the um, skills that was identified as you know a skill of need um, with regards to um, uh, for Northern Ireland. I still think there's more work needs to be done there um, in how we influence the UK immigration rules for Northern Ireland. Um, but there's also a big piece to it being done around attraction, um, and you know. Bringing out the benefits of working in, you know, in tourism and, and hospitality, um, and um, and really encouraging people back in. But, you know, as I say, there was there was a challenge before COVID. The year sort of disguised that because obviously, you know, just we were decimated, um, and now again it's coming back to the to the fore. But I do think you would probably get a very special offer, John, if you, if you put your services. And I might take somebody up on that. <laughs> I'm sure somewhere in Loch Ness. <laughs> well, uh, actually, I'm glad you mentioned Loch Ness for tourism purposes. Yes. <laughs> it's on my list to do when I brief the committee. <laughs> oh, have we froze? Thanks, um, Joanne, for that. I don't have any more questions. Um, so look, thank you very much for the briefing. It has been very helpful and I'm sure you, you'll be back with us soon enough. And just to um, reiterate what other members have said, uh, thanks for your ongoing engagement with the committee and for the briefings. I know I certainly find them very, very informative. So um, thanks for everything. Thank you, uh, Chair. And again, thank you for the committee's support um, in the issues uh, that we've raised. Great, thank you. Thank you, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, Peter, what are we doing from so that? Quite a briefing? few things coming out of that one, Chair. Uh, in terms of briefings, I think it would be worthwhile trying to get Roisin McKee in around the issues that have been raised with skills in the yep. sector as well. And as Joanne had pointed out, Belfast Met's the hub um, for tourism and hospitality training, so it might be worthwhile getting, getting a joint briefing there. Um, in terms of the Health Minister, we have a number of issues to write to him on uh, around those quarantine issues that Joanne had raised, um, the certificates issue that's been raised, the um, dates around the 21st of June, you know, what will that actually mean for everyone? The kind of same outcomes across um, the CTA as well. Um, also, the issues around mitigations being reduced in terms of capacity. Um, what, what I'm going to do is, those, those are probably all health, but we copy in the economy minister. Then in terms of other ministers, we've got economy and finance ministers um, around continuing support for the parts of the sector that will not be able to just bounce back quickly. Members have seen correspondence from a number of sectors. Um, one example is the independent wedding venues. They, you know, It's not a case of you know, today we open and that's that. It's going to take a while for their business to rebuild again. And there's other there's other parts of the sector that are like that. Um, so it's trying to see if there's going to be support ongoing for them. 
and members are, are aware that we've written about the English language um, teaching sector, which has a very heavy tourism presence, but obviously can't benefit from staycations. They're, they're entirely dependent on travellers coming in from non-English speaking countries to learn. So there, there, there's a, a big piece of work to be done there. So again, that's all to be flagged up. Um, the free PCR test, we flagged that one up with the Health Minister as well, that Stuart had highlighted. And I'd see if I can get any kind of information um, from, the, the I think he'd specifically said Liverpool um, city region. We're doing this, but we see if we can get some information because it's always helpful to send on. Um, and I think I've got, I think that's all of it. But the team, anything I've missed, the team will have. We're we're, we're very good at picking up everything at the end of the meeting, so we'll we'll get those letters off as fast as possible. Hopefully, some of the answers, chair, as Joanne had highlighted, will come from tomorrow's executive meeting, because um, it looks like she's already flagged up quite a bit with the health minister. Okay. Um, Peter, just I, I raised it with the finance minister yesterday in the budget. Obviously, the yeah. furloughs due to end at the end of, of September um, might be useful to write to the, the, the Chancellor in respect of that in terms yeah. of sector-specific flexibility being necessary, um, as has been outlined for the sectors that can't just bounce back. Yeah. Um, okay. Are members content with the actions that Peter has outlined? Okay. okay. So moving on then to item number six, which is our matters arising. So um, item number or six point one at page three hundred and ten of your packs, there's a response from the Justice Committee on the work around judi judicial reviews. The committee um, had written to the Justice Committee following our briefing from the planning officials around the impact of judicial reviews on planning decisions. Um, the Justice Committee hasn't undertaken any work in relation to um, judicial reviews and has no plans to do so at present. So that is just for members to note at this point. Um, moving on 6.2 then, at page 311, there is correspondence from TEO Committee requesting a list of stakeholders relevant to COVID-19 recovery and the High Street Task Force ahead of our concurrent meeting, which is scheduled for the 16th of June. So our members just content to send on that list to the TEO Committee. Thank you. Great. And then 313, there's correspondence from the Finance Committee on the Independent Fiscal Council. Um, the Finance Committee is currently taking oral and written evidence on its establishment and the potential roles and powers it may have. The Committee has determined that a Fiscal Council may have the following dimension and is seeking the views of other committees. Um, and these include functionality, discretion, powers, independence, competence, credibility and assembly engagement. So the submissions for that close on Friday the 4th of June at 12 noon. And if members are agreed that the clerk will draft a response to the call for evidence that will then be um, for the committee's approval. Um, are members content with that? Then page 316, there is a response from TEO regarding the Economic Recovery Action Plan. We had written to the Executive Office in March regarding the need for adequate funding and support from across the Executive for that plan. So the response says that TEO welcomes the launch of the Economic Recovery Action Plan. They advise that the Executive is focused on building a longer term plan which encompasses 
three key programmes, the first being moving forward um, the executive's pathway out of restrictions. So obviously we were briefed by the Minister on that on the 12th of May and it has been fully funded by the, the Finance Minister. So that's just to note for now. Okay. Moving on then, page 318, there's a response from the Health Minister regarding COVID testing. We had written to the Health Minister back in March regarding any plans to extend testing to businesses. The Health Minister states that workforces asymptomatic testing is now available free of charge to all organisations with 12 or more employees or volunteers who cannot work from home. Officials are working to expand the range of community-based testing facilities for small businesses to access so our members content to note. Thank you. Great. Moving on then, pages 320 and 321 respectively, there are responses from Deloitte and the Labour Relations Agency in relation to the LCM on company director disqualification legislation. Um, Deloitte are supportive of the amendments proposed as they should not provide, as they should, sorry, provide a stronger deterrent against fraud. They feel that these amendments should be accompanied by additional resources to support the insolvency service and the LRA advises that it has no formal response as the matter sits outside of its core responsibility. So our members content to note and Peter is going to draft up the... Yeah, sure. we, we've got a, a, an LCM report already drafted. We bring that to committee next week. Um, we are still trying to pin down a date where the, mo the motion will come to the chamber, but essentially the committee needs to get a, a, a report in place before that happens. So the responses we've had thus far, and you'll see it uh, as we go further in, um, have indicated no issues. Um, so the, the uh, report reflects that, and again, it'll be for committee to approve it next week. Great, thank you. Um, 6.8 then at page 322, there is a copy of a Court of Appeal judgment forwarded by Rani in relation to the judicial review proceedings uh, regarding the um, Regional Rates and Energy Act 2019. So that's just for members to note for now. Okay. 6.9 then, there's a response from the Minister at page 35 of Table Papers following the committee's request that she meets with NUS USI. The Minister has indicated that she will be happy to meet when her diary permits, so are members content to note? Um, Chair, Kate, just sorry. an update on that. I've made contact with uh, NUS in Scotland, Wales and uh, USI in the South, so uh, I'm in the process of asking them just what they do uh, in terms of engagement with Government. Wales, I think, has already come back. Uh, and they have a, a well-established sort of system. I'm still waiting for Scotland and the South to respond. Thanks, Peter. Um, moving on then, 6.10, at page 36 of Table Papers, there's a response from the Minister for Aviation to the Committee's letter regarding the recognition of pilot licences post-EU exit. The Minister outlines that the UK has just concluded negotiations on the Aviation Safety Agreement and reaching an agreement on licence recognition in the future will, will require uh, willingness from both sides. Furthermore, as mentioned in the letter from the CAA, the EU has decided not to recognise UK licences at this point. The Minister states that the Government will continue to engage with the EU on this matter. So are members content to forward that response to the pilot who has raised this matter? Thank you. Then at 6.11, there is a copy um, of a paper from the Skills Advisory Group at page 37 of Table Papers, providing an update to the committee. 
Um, the committee will want to consider this in detail and in the context of our micro-inquiry report on skills. So members are just content to note uh, for now and we will return to it um, in more detail at a later date. Great. Thank you. 612 then, there's a response from FSB at page 43 of table papers to the committee's consultation on the LCM on the company director's disqualification. The LCM has will be considered further at agenda item number eight. So are members content to note for now? Great. So moving on then to um, item number seven, SR 2021-000, the administration restrictions on disposal, etc., to connected persons regulations NI 2021. There is a clerk's memo at page 328 and an SR at page um, 329. This SR prohibits disposal of a company's business or assets or excuse me, substantial part thereof to anyone connected with the company during the eight weeks following entry into administration unless one of two conditions are met. These are that either the creditors have approved the disposal or a report on the disposal has been obtained from an independent and suitably qualified person. So our members considered the SL1 at our meeting on the 14th of April. Um, the statutory rule is subject to the draft affirmative resolution procedure. Um, the rule will come into operation on the 25th of June. The examiner's statutory rules has not yet reported on it, so members will be agreeing to the legislation subject to the examiner of statutory rules support a report. So are members content with the SR and we'll put the question okay. that the Committee for the Economy has considered the SR 2021-000, the administration restrictions on disposal, etc. to connected persons regulations NI 2021 and recommends that it be affirmed by the Assembly subject to the examiner of statutory rules report. Thank you, Chair. So then moving on to item number eight, the rating coronavirus and directors disqualification dissolve companies bill. Um, at page 344, there's a copy of the LCM on the written coronavirus and directors disqualification dissolve companies bill, um, which has been laid in the business office on the 20th of May. Um, at our meeting on the 19th of May, we uh, considered the written coronavirus and directors disqualification dissolve companies bill. Um, and the LCM will enable amendments to legislation applying to company directors disqualified in the north for the purpose of enabling the conduct of directors or companies which have been dissolved without having been subject to insolvency proceedings to be investigated and where appropriate disqualification action and payment of compensation to creditors sought. Um, so just to remind members, we've already written to stakeholders. Um, we've obviously just considered the responses. Four have been received to date and no objections have been raised. So the draft report and a copy of all the written responses will be considered at next week's meeting. So um, moving on then to item number nine, which is correspondence. Um, there, at page 353 of your pack, there is correspondence from the TEO committee requesting information on any work that has been carried out by our committee in relation to the impact of the protocol on businesses. Um, so if members are content, the clerk will compile and forward this information to the TEO committee. Thank you. 9.2 then at page 354, there is correspondence from the Finance Committee on the UK Internal Market Act. The clerk advises that the Finance Committee considered a response from the Department of Finance on an Assembly research paper on the UK Internal Market Act. 
The committee states that the finance department provided a limited response on state aid and indicated limited consideration of the term special regard as stated in the act. The committee awaits a response from the Department for Economy and the Executive Office. So that's just for members to note. 9.3 then at page 361. There is a copy of correspondence from the House of Lords European Affairs Subcommittee on the Protocol to the Department for Work and Pensions regarding the EM700721 Commission delegation, Delegated Regulation. The EM outlines the way in which the Delegated Act would require the North suppliers to reclassify and relabel their chemicals in accordance with new harmonised classifications. The Committee believes there is a lack of clarity over the areas in which regulatory divergence between Britain and here is likely to develop and puts a number of questions to the Minister for Employment. So it's just for members to note and to consider a copy of the response once we receive that. Members content? Moving on then, page 363, uh, there's a copy of correspondence from the House of Lords European Affairs Subcommittee on the Protocol to Penny Mordaunt, MP, Paymaster General, regarding a proposal for a directive of the EU Parliament and of the Council of Resilience of Critical Entities. The letter states that the subcommittee notes that the directive may impact on the protocol due to its potential impacts on the uh, single electricity market. The chair poses a number of questions to the paymaster general and again is to note so that we can consider a copy of the response once that's received. Thank you, Chair. <clears throat> Moving on then to page 365, there is correspondence from Ballantyne Building Solutions with a request to meet the committee. So our members are content we'll arrange an informal meeting. Okay. Thank you. Then page 366, um, the annual accounts of Intertrade Ireland. The Comptroller and Auditor General had no issues to raise, uh, so that's just for members to note. Chair, probably the only thing to flag up, and it's an issue the committee's discussed before, is how much ultimately they get budget allocations in-year. Um, where the, the actual uh, core budget has been static, but members have, have discussed this with Intertrade itself and they, they seem to be relatively happy with um, the way that has worked. And there is, as we know, um, I think roughly six million still available for um, protocol impact, uh, EU exit impact, etc. Okay, um, moving on 9.7 then at page 412. There's correspondence from an individual regarding difficulties experienced by businesses as a result of the protocol. So that's just for members to note. And then at page 413, there is a copy of CBI's COVID-19 working group notes from its meeting on the 19th of May. So that's also for members to note. And then there is a, a page 45 of table papers, a copy of the Brussels report from the NI Executive Office in Brussels, and again, it's for members to note. Um, and then page 65 of table papers, there is a copy of correspondence from the Hotels Federation to the Executive Office regarding the need for a derogation on buffet and carvery service in hospitality establishments. So if members of contempt will forward that on to the department to ask if they're aware of the matter and what discussions have taken place at the Executive on rules around this issue. 
And then page 67 of table papers, there is a copy of correspondence from the minister to a caravan owner regarding the payment of site fees and a notice to remove a caravan. The minister advises the issue of annual site fees for holiday caravans is a contractual one between the caravan owner and the park owner and that the department's trading standards service has no remit to facilitate the reduction or refund of site fees or to determine the appropriate refunded amount. So this is a, a, an issue that the committee has raised a few times. It is, Chair. It's, it's, there, there's a nuance to this one, and members, um, probably particularly in coastal areas, will be aware that when you buy a, a caravan on some sites, you're told that you have a certain number of years, and then the caravan will have to be replaced. Uh, and licence to be on the site is often renewed on an annual basis. So there's a fear you know, of, of kicking up too much of us in case you are told your licence hasn't been removed and you have to remove the caravan early. But it's this dispute as to whether or not um, you can be told your, your caravan has now reached that age limit, you, you either buy a new one or you leave. But because it's a contract, the department can't intervene there. So this is probably something that would ultimately have to be legislated on. Okay, members content to note. Thank and you. then the final item of correspondence, page 104, is a copy of a CBI paper on resetting the direction of the economy. So members are content we'll schedule an oral briefing from CBI on the forward work programme to discuss the paper um, and the economic recovery and outlook. Great. So moving on then, item number 10 is any other business and none has been highlighted. So members happy enough? And then item number 11, the date, time and place of the next meeting is next Wednesday morning in room 29. And just to remind members, there's no informal meeting this week. So that's us. Thank you, Chair. Chair, can I just jump in? Oh, oh. Yep, John. Yeah, go ahead, John. Chair, this is my last meeting. I just want to thank you and Peter and the entire team and all the committee members for their support. And for it's been a pleasure working with you all. I'll not be a stranger and hopefully I'll be back again soon. But just to say... Um, I'll be thinking Mike's taking over from myself next week. So unless something changes this in the last meeting. So wish us all well going forward. It's been a pleasure. John, wish you the very best of luck in whatever role that you're taking up. And um, I'm sure you won't be a stranger. So thank you for all of your work as well. <laughs> no problem. Thanks, John. We will miss you on uh, the committee. John, you've been great. Thanks, Sinead. I'm sure I'm going to be everybody on this committee, so you should take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> You're great too, Christopher. <laughs> you should save that recording. <laughs> it's all caught on video. All caught on video. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Kerr. Thank you. Thanks. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 